You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Welcome to October. You are back in the movie graveyard. Go roll along with uh, old faithful here, trusty gravedigger Trev. Trev, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Happy boogity boogity boo to you. Goat. Oh yes, things are. I'll tell you what. It's early October right now, but things are already getting even spookier than usual in the movie graveyard, aren't they? Yeah. Well, it's been a very it's been a very spooky 2020 in general. So oh, yeah, yeah. It's that makes sense. Yeah. It's the, most, like, the most terrifying year of my life for many reasons. Well, like, we've just been sitting around getting kind of fat because we haven't had to actually, uh, you know, lay to rest any new movies coming into the graveyard. Like, so we haven't actually buried a movie in months. Like, I think the last one we buried was Bloodshot with Vin Diesel, huh? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so we're, we're going to take a wild cinematic trip through time and we're going to talk about one of the, you know, we're, go- we're going, uh, this is always listed as a movie, which I mean, I guess it was technically a movie, a movie of the yeah, week, I guess you could that's say. stretching it because it's, like, it's actually, a, it's a failed pilot. Right. Yeah. That got turned into like, I always thought, what was it? Wonderful World of Disney? Yeah. Doesn't, I mean, doesn't feature, uh, it's the magical world of Disney, right? Right, right. Doesn't, right. uh, doesn't feature length constitute 70 minutes at least. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. You're really cheating the system when you're calling this thing a movie. Yeah, But it's weird though. Cause like a lot of people, when you look it up, they call this a movie. No, I know. And I think, I think that's because of the sequel, which is feature length. And I think you'll okay. just assume they both are. So we were talking about this almost the pilot turning into a uh, episode of the week. Some people call it a movie of the week. You call it whatever you want. I'm going to call it Mister Boogity. <laughs> now give it its due. Every like I noticed on a couple of sites when I looked at it, it was it was uh, frequently listed as the award winning Mister Boogity. Yeah. I did some research and I can't find any awards this thing won. <laughs> I saw it was nominated for exceptional young actress starring in a television special and Ooh. exceptional young actor starring in a television special. But they did not win, so I don't okay. know. Uh, I don't know any awards they won. Should but I'll be, take, you know. Yeah, it should maybe be award nominated. Some award somewhere. Yeah, it, the Kalamazoo Film Festival, <laughs> <laughs> best failed pilot of the year. So yeah, so we're gonna get Mr. Boogie to start it. We're like full disclosure. We're we're actually uh, going into the digital realm with this one. We're streaming it off the Disney Plus. So we're gonna hit play like. So hit play. There is a DVD of that. And I I actually, don't let me forget that, Trevor. I want to talk about the Mr. Boogity DVD shenanigans that are going on. Because I got got a a workaround for fans out there if they got to own a physical copy of Mr. Boogity. I don't want them to get ripped off. But we're streaming out the plus. So we're just going to go ahead and hit play. Yeah, there's no logos on this bad boy. The Mr. Yeah. Boogie doesn't wait around. You know? no, no, it's black screen. You hit play, and then you're in the movie. It's almost Mr. like this. Yeah, Mr. Boogie waits for no one. He doesn't. Not even, not even his own parent company and their and their stupid logos. Exactly. So I'm gonna say one, two, three, go. And when you hear me say go, hit play on whatever you're playing this off of. All right, you ready, Trev? I'm ready. All right, one, two, three, go. Damn, already, right. Mr. Boogie. That title card came up in record time, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was, there's no there's no waiting around in this. Mm-mm. Starring Richard Mazur, Mimi Kennedy. I wasn't familiar. Mimi Kennedy is pretty much the only person I wasn't familiar with. Did you know who she was? I didn't, but then I looked her up, and she's had a really good career. Like She's been consistently working this whole time. She's a regular on that CBS uh, sitcom Mom right now. Um, okay. There's a lot of TV work. 
Okay, so the first actual human we see in this is actually a very young, this is like her second or third credit ever, Christy Swanson. So I'm assuming she was the one that was nominated, huh, Trev? Yeah, um, everyone's second favorite Buffy and everyone's favorite uh, Trumpster. (laughs) You know what? I'll actually agree with that, except I'm going to go... I'm going to knock her up to the, the list of she's my favorite Buffy. Okay. Yeah. I can't go with you. I do actually like, I do enjoy the Buffy movie and there is some, yeah. I like, I like Christy Swanson in it and I also like her a lot in the chase, but, uh, yeah. Christy Swanson, the person, uh, not, not a, uh, not a favorite of mine. You know, well, <laughs> I can't believe we're going here on Mr. Boogity, but what offends you more, <laughs> her political beliefs or the husbands she steals? <laughs> it's it's a it's a whole package you okay. know um, yeah. with, with the exception of literally child molesters i gotta admit i don't care what anybody says what they do as long as it's not like a ho- horrific like offensive crime whatever like i just she's one of my favorite actresses i really don't give a shit what she says or does you know it's it's her it's her private business it's her whatever um but you know now, th- this is really crazy. There's a Devil May Care Realty sign on this haunted house uh, from C.B. Karloff Realtor. And yeah. then and then there's like a little chunk that hangs off that says definitely or, or really not haunted. And then eventually later it will glow and say really haunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, like, I guess we should say, because I think there's a lot of people who haven't, aren't too familiar with Mr. Boogity, but Richard Mazur and Mimi Kennedy are parents who... Uh, they they it's not like a thing they started they're like franchisees of like what is it gag city yeah gag city they basically yeah they run a company that sells like you know plastic vomit and whoopee cushions and joy buzzers and the 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 conceit of this film is richard mazer has decided to move his family to this small little town lucifer falls because there's no other gag company in this town and he feels like they'll they're corner of the market which begs the question how many gag companies are in every other town <laughs> this was right. a, a necessity for him but yeah he brags about it man like hey nobody's gonna he's come very in on proud our of it. The, the two sons love it uh, christy yeah. swanson is the one person in the family who's not enamored with the family business i know and like like the opening scene was them i guess because they was driving cross country or several hundred miles away so they, they stopped for a picnic in a park and the mom gave like christy swanson a big see-through bag of like cheetos or something mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so, and now they're at their haunted house and like I mean, we're just talking like full on cobwebs and shit. And like, I don't think it is the same house, but like, I had strong flashbacks, Trev, when I watched this to uh, the Midnight Hour. Yeah, it definitely has that that look. And I mean, just the that that's why it's kind of cool that we're doing this since we've done it before because this has that same like mid mid eighties TV horror vibe. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it looks it's like a little different on the inside, but I I was watching this and wondering. Was this like a set for something else that they just appropriated, or because this was a pilot, did they build this house and this set thinking that this might go on to, you know, be a show? Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, I mean, I'm sure obviously the facade outside uh, was part of a backlot type thing, yeah. but but a lot of times those backlot houses that you see, like the streets, they're, yeah, they're just they, flat. Yeah, yeah, inside they're empty, so it very well could have been something built on a soundstage just for this particular movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not too functional, but it would have been cool if they could have actually shot it uh, in the the haunted mansion or whatever. <laughs> so, well, I in guess... a world where this like in a world where this like really took off and was a huge hit, do you think they would have put like a Mister Boogity animatronic into the haunted mansion? 
uh, probably not at that time because they like at that time Disney was a little different. They weren't exactly bending to the will of like the latest and greatest. Where Disney yeah. now is like, oh, we got a hit. Okay, shove it in here, shove it in there. Yeah, you know, throw throw eighteen Johnny Depp uh, robots into Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, you know, jumping ahead here for the people who actually are familiar with Mr. Boogity. I'm just curious, like, exactly what the format of Mr. Boogity, the TV show, would have been. It couldn't have been about Mr. Boogity because they kind of vanquish him, like, in this. Like, I think it would have been maybe the kids and then the great uh, John Aston here. Uh, I think it would have been them teaming up with him because he's, like, the local historical guy. Which, by mm-hmm. the way, he camped out in their house, totally trespassing just to uh like scare them when they show up at their house because he's trying to tell them to get out of this house you know he's he... i thought that was weird too when they first came in i thought maybe he was like the guy who sold them the house or the realtor yeah. or something but no you're right he's, he's just a he's just a townsman who's like there to tell them don't stay right uh, and they take it fairly well i don't know if i would respond very well to that exactly and like it was weird too because I, I i got the same impression i thought he was the realtor because when they the devil may care realty has like a devil with the like it almost kind of like the sign on the, the 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 whatever the drawing on the realtor sign almost looked the way John Aston is dressed right here. So, mm-hmm. but like right away, like I, it's a great move to put John Aston this early into the show because right away, um, that makes me just like kind of fall in love with this because right? John, John Aston's like one of those actors who you're just kind of happy when he shows up. Right? Oh yeah, I mean especially when you're trying to sell something like this, like a cool like family Halloween special, anything that evokes Adam's family, of course, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And beyond that, I also, I'm sure you're with me on this, Goat. I also love John Aston as Professor Gangrene in the Rotten, uh, in the uh, Killer Tomatoes films. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot he was in those, to be honest. Yeah, he was also, he did the cartoon as well, uh, which I watched when I was younger. Yeah, was it, was, I can't remember. Am I hallucinating? Was there a toy line? I thought there was of Killer Tomatoes. There was. Yeah, the toy line yeah. was based off of the cartoon. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, even before they officially crossed it over for children, I remember it always being a kid-friendly type thing. Oh, here we it go. It definitely is, because it's just a goofy, goofy satire. Yeah. We should we, we should also mention who the... Uh, so we talked about Christy Swanson, we talked about Richard Mazar uh, being the dad, and Mimi Kennedy, but the two sons that we see here exploring, looking around the house, um, both known to uh, people our age, for sure. We got the uh, the older brother being played by David Faustino, and the younger brother being played by uh, Benjamin Gregory, who the name might not be too familiar to you, but he was the son in uh, Alf. Oh, okay. I, I knew I knew I knew him. I just figured, oh, he was one of those kids that was in a ton of different movies and TV shows. But yeah, yeah, like he was he was one of those perfect little sitcom like Muppet kids with like the yeah. hair and shit, you know. Yeah. And interesting enough, according to the trivia, uh, Joaquin Phoenix auditioned for the role that Faustino is playing. That's interesting. I actually would would love to have seen him in it because uh, I saw a um, episode of uh, the Superboy TV show recently that had Joaquin Phoenix in it, mm-hmm. where, where he he like it was pretty like weird and hardcore. Like he was basically a kid that like um, I, th- I can't remember if he was like a computer hacker or what he did, but like he he was like really smart in this school and he was getting picked on and he had like a hallucination sequence. That he was Superboy, and he it was like it was crazy seeing a Joaquin Phoenix in the Superboy costume, but then like 
because that show is pretty tame. Like I always enjoyed it, but it's pretty tame. But uh, he like uh, you know used the super Superman Superboy powers on these bullies, and then like one of them, it was it was like literally like out of that movie uh, Brightburn or whatever. Like he burned this guy to death with the X ray vision or whatever it is, the laser beam <laughs> vision. It was it's pretty insane. I'm sure it's probably on YouTube. If anybody would just look up Joaquin Phoenix Superboy, see if you can find that clip. It's really bizarre and insane to see that, especially later, like now that we know he is the. Uh, you know the cinematic Joker, whatever character. Yeah, I have more to say about that, but I don't want to. I don't want to overlook. We just passed maybe my favorite line in the entire Mister Boogity special when mm-hmm. Christy Swanson is kind of wandering around the house and she's talking about how uh, creepy this place is, and she's talking about the town in general, and she's like, "Oh, this town's so like lame. I bet nobody here has ever heard of Bruce Springsteen." Right. And I, I like how that's how she determines if it's a cool town to live in. Exactly. Well, that tells you exactly the period. And like all mm-hmm. 80s teens, she's got the the Walkman ear, you know, earphones yeah. around her neck. But do you think this means so in a split like in a split timeline, there's a there's an alternate universe where Joaquin Phoenix got this role and David Faustino went on to win an Oscar for being in a shitty Joker movie? Oh. Uh, I don't know. I think he's too short. <laughs> if, he, if he was six inches taller I, th- I think he would have had the chops to win it as the because honestly like um the the joker thing was less of a uh joker performance more of like like todd phillips just sitting everybody down before every shot of the movie and saying okay this is the king of comedy this is taxi driver yeah. this is what we're recreating <laughs> yeah it was more slavish than the uh 90s version of uh psycho that gus van sant made <laughs> now here, here like we kind of had the, like the sign glowing really haunted and all this but this is like our first like okay there's no denying it skeptics would have to turn mr boogie off now because we we have proof when this uh teddy bear goes missing right here that is supernatural activity right mm-hmm. how much would you be willing to pay for one of these gag city jackets if you came across it on ebay oh i mean probably like several um you know, dozens of dollars, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I guess you'd have to get the Richard Mazur one because you ain't going to fit into the... No, nah, not uh, the little kids one. Probably, at yeah. this point, I probably wouldn't even fit in the Richard Mazur one, to be honest <laughs> with you. By the way, I, I wanted to bring him up. I loved Richard Mazur, like, even oh, as I, a kid. The, his his performance as the dad in License to Drive is, yeah. a, is a great comedic performance. Just everything he was in, man, like the thing. and uh, he's, he's very likable. That's one thing I, I'll say about Mr. Boogie. Like when you talk about what actually works in this, this whole family unit, they're very likable. I like how they're like a very – they are a very loving family. Um, the, relationship he, the relationship he has with the kids is like really strong. Um, like there's never any – they don't really bring a lot of tension in this family, which you would obviously see if this was like something made today, you know? Um, I like that they're just like, they're good parents. They're both, you know, they're both entertaining. They're both whimsical. Uh, yeah, I like him in this. Yeah. And gag city fun never stops. Even at the breakfast table, they try to get Christy Swanson with, uh, some f- rubber eggs. Oh, and- see there, David Faustino had the bang gun. See, he heard me talking about the Joker. Thing. Yeah. He was like, he was like predicting the like Jack Nicholson type thing right there. But, um, but yeah, so they, they have the eggs of squirt water like i did think the bang gun was a little weak gag though because it's like mm-hmm. the other the other gags like they require setup like they catch you they laugh at you that's just like pulling out a fake gun that says bang on it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, richard mazer is wearing one of those watches that's like it's like a little toy car that you lift up and the, the digital readout is underneath it i had like tons of those kind of watches when i was a kid i remember like different characters and stuff yeah like i I bought it like second hand at like a garage sale or something but i had a ninja turtles one that was like that of uh, Raphael. 
Yeah, I think I had a Bugs Bunny one. Nice. I remember, too, like, when you got a little older, like, when Batman 89 came out, I had, like, an actual Joker watch that was just, mm-hmm. like, more just, like, a regular cheap Timex watch, but, it, you know, it had, like, it was colored like the Joker, and, like, around the digital readout was a little picture of the Joker laughing. Now, the one thing I do want to say is, like, like pretty much up until this point right here, like, like you think, like, Christy Swanson is going to be, like, the main character in this in this show that, like, okay, as an audience... This is like whose eyes we are seeing through because like they totally use her to set up like the whole whatever reluctance moving to the town that when they get there, she's the one kind of selling. She's the first one that's scared. So they're using her to sell how scary it is. And then like it kind of tracks her. But pretty much like I'd say after this scene right here where she goes into uh, to investigate this door that's glowing out, and, you know, green glow behind it. After that, she kind of recedes and it becomes very much more like a well-rounded ensemble uh, show. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like you definitely think like the whole thing is going to be the family not believing her. But uh, that's another thing I kind of like about it. It's something that um, you can pull off in like 45 minutes, but it also is like. And I don't mean this in a bad way. It's the most childish aspect of it, but I, but in like a way, like a goosebumps book or something, where the family actually goes along with it pretty quickly. Like right. once they all have their first encounter, they're just like, "Oh yeah, we are living in a haunted house." So she opens the door. Green like light comes out. She passes out. Do you think she actually got like the like the first glimpse right there of, of actual Mister Boogity? I mean, either that or the uh, the uh, Repo Man car was in there. Well, she didn't turn into an x-ray skeleton, so I'm going to go with it was Mr. Boogity. But yeah, but yeah, like I, I really think in a weird way, um, and obviously, like we said, this didn't go on to become a show or whatever, but it, it really reminds me like so much of like Goosebumps and like that other one, Afraid of the Dark or whatever. And um, it really has that tone and look and... Um, I don't know. Like, I think it's cool, and I, I, just, I think this is a cool genre, and this is kind of like why I wanted to kick off October with it's just something that was uh, a kind of bite size because this is a, basically a short film, and then also like something that just you know it's like it's real easy. Um, I think last year I avoided doing any kind of horror stuff during October because it's very easy, you know, uh, for these podcasts to just retreat into the goriest, most memorable, mm-hmm. whatever you know, and then like. I don't know. I think it's nice to be reminded that, you know, you can have fun with horror and it doesn't have to be completely dark and depressing at all times. Yeah, I think we've talked about this, but in recent years in particular, I've been really like every October, I've been trying to mix it up and watch a lot of these kind of older TV Halloween specials. Um, And I agree. Like, I think um, I find myself like more nostalgic for like the the lighter side of Halloween that was kind of more apparent in the 80s when we were kids. Um, all those like old like Halloween cartoons we would get, and I I go back and watch like the old Elvira specials, and even something like completely goofy like the Paul Lind Halloween special. Yeah. Now, I know I know like you said, like Christy Swanson's come under a lot of fire um, for her political beliefs and whatnot, and uh, she said she you know she loses out on Hollywood jobs because of her beliefs, but she mm-hmm. claims she was always. Uh, you know, conservative, because that's the way she was raised. Do you think she was uh, yelling at the cast members this whole time with her filming this, that she had, that they had to vote for Reagan in the fall? <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Probably, she was probably constantly telling him about how, like, AIDS isn't a big deal, don't worry about it. Yeah. So here we, here we go. This is now when, like, 
because up at this point, even though Chrissy Swanson was like passing the hallway, like you said, nobody's really believing. But now we're like, I would say pretty much every member of the family, you know, the two boys here are kind of lumped together because they're always kind of scamping around together. But like, mm-hmm. this is where they really get convinced that something supernatural is going on because the toaster yeah. is glowing and it's super hot. We should talk about the previous scene, though. So, like, when they find the footprints on the wall, and it turns out that they're, like, gag footprints, mm-hmm. is that to insinuate that Mr. Boogity put up gag footprints? Because, like, nobody else did that, right? Yeah, Mazer was like, oh, you could take it. it. Look at these. These are great. Well, well, the thing is, is, like, I think they're – the way this is the way I took it. Now, this is where we're going to get into deep into the interpretations of Mr. Boogity. I think they were real. I just think it happens to be that – you know, taking it, I think they were definitely kind of stolen from Ghostbusters, assuming this was filmed after Ghostbusters, which I think it was, because I think this, mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. 86. Yeah, 86. Um, for some reason, I was thinking it was 84, but uh, yeah, 86. So I think it was just like their cheap ass version of ectoplasm, because like, I didn't know how to take that scene either. I was like, well, maybe it's a gag, but the fact that Richard Mazur is like, oh, these are great. We could sell these. Like, they're clearly not from the, the you know, the gag city stock that's like, clumping up all their rooms in their house so i mean right i think it's actually legit like ectoplasm it just happens to be sticky like you know and richard mazer's like rubbing it in his mouth and shit unaware <laughs> i have a little lady killer david faustino rocking the members only jacket here yeah he's looking good man for like what was he probably like a 10 year old at this point mm-hmm. he, you know he was macking on uh k swanson there and all he got he was definitely too uh too young for her she was probably more interested in john astin (laughs) wouldn't it be be like the worst story ever if uh she went to the commissary one day shooting mr boogie and that's where she fell in love with her future fiance who was (laughs) there getting his daily oat brand muffin or whatever For those who don't know, we're, of course, talking about uh, Alan Thicke. Uh, yeah. If you don't know if you don't know about the relationship, look it up uh, and prepare to be somewhat, uh, well, not somewhat, uh, completely yeah. grossed out. I, I would say that information in the 80s or 90s would be shocking. But like you said, now that we know what we know, maybe not. But but I think this is really great. Uh, and this is where this, this show kind of like, you know, because, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was digging it up until this point when I watched it. But it was I was really digging it out of nostalgia and memory. Like, a lot of this reminded me of the Midnight Hour, like that first scene where the kids delivering the papers and stuff. And then, like, this scene is where it really kind of, like, took a different turn. This is where John Aston just straight out explains the backstory of Mr. Boogity. Because Mr. Boogity is, like, a known entity in this town. Yeah, and, and they go back to this this flashback in Pilgrim times, but I actually I, stylistically I love this that that pretty much like the card the background is like cardboard paintings and shit like uh, yeah it's just a white background it looks like um, Lars von Trier's Dogville which right. is filmed in like an open soundstage um, yeah I think it's I think it is a really cool stylistic touch I also like how the official like town ledger of this is like a pop up book <laughs> right right so so the pop up book kind of explains why the background is so cardboardy and shit mm-hmm. yeah it's meant to look like that um, so the, for those who haven't seen it and for some reason are listening to us talk about it for the first time uh, this this backstory of Mr. Boogity is he was a really grumpy pilgrim in this yeah. town back in the day who uh, used to scare all the children just because he was like an old jerk and then he fell in love with a woman in the town, and she kind of, uh, you know, turned him down. And that's what set him on his eternal quest for revenge, I guess. Yeah, it's really weird, too. And, like, the um, the explanation of uh, kind of what happens here is um, Mr. Boogity sells his soul for a magic cloak that makes him become invisible. 
like like i mean this was pretty like rapid fire and when i was watching this yesterday maybe i didn't really like take it in the right way but how exactly was the magic cloak to turn him invisible gonna like you know help him get this woman that he wanted so bad yeah if you read between the lines and anyways to me he wanted to just kind of like actually like peep on the woman and then if you really want to go really dark with it like obviously he could just flat out assault the woman but they're i guess they're not going to say that in the magical world of disney right you know and see, I think I think the scene here where um, uh, Mr. Boogity, which by the way, his last name isn't really Boogity. It's just he got that nickname because he likes scaring children by literally saying Boogity, Boogity, Boogity. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like the scene when yeah, he, his name is Hanover. Yeah, I like the scene when uh, he meets the devil. Like I don't know, there was something that felt like actually legit, kind of weird and sinister to this. So um, maybe it's a good time to talk about. I don't know how much you looked into this, but the original script by Michael Janover for this was meant to be kind of like, uh, I think it was feature length originally, and it was written to be kind of a an airplane-esque uh, comedy. It was called Cheap Thrills, and it was meant to be a, a, a starring vehicle for Cheech and Chong. And then uh, Disney picked it up, and he took it and like, kind of toned it down into what we see here. That's crazy. I, didn't, I, I, I did read somewhere that um, Cheech and Chong were supposed to do a movie like that that never happened, but I had no idea it had like connection to Mr. Boogity. Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, getting back to, like, I think what this show would have been if it would have become a weekly show, Trev, is I think it would have been literally the kids going to John Aston and investigating different things that happened in this town. Like, I think this is, like, really could have been the groundwork for, like, what later become, like, something like uh, Erie, Indiana. You might be right, but I, I'm willing to bet Mr. Boogity would have been a recurring character, at least, oh, yeah. like, popping up in every, like, three episodes or so. Because by the time this came out, this was definitely the the days of Freddy and Jason, where no horror villain was ever truly dead. Mm-hmm. And we don't get what we don't get into here, which I imagine we would have, and it, it'll even come across a little bit more in the sequel, I believe. But uh, Mr. Boogity himself really has not much of a personality in this. Right. And that's something you, you could see him becoming more of like a a kind of a jokester um, recurring character over time. Yeah, like, uh, I guess we should just spill the beans. The one thing that blew me away when I watched this, because, you know, when I first came across this, when Disney Plus went up, I saw, like, the picture, and it's, like, this guy in this bizarre Halloween mask, Mr. Boogity. And I'm like, oh, man, I want to see Mr. Boogity. Like, Mr. Boogity, yeah. Like, I just thought they were trying to basically create a very, you know, G-rated, like, horror, whatever, uh, villain at the time. But uh, the one thing that blew me away when I watched this is this is a 45-minute, you know, whatever you want to call it, pilot short film. But you don't physically actually see the, I mean, you see the flashback of him in his human form, but you don't see the monster form of Mr. Boogity until 39 minutes in. Yeah. Yeah, they really save him until the end. He really is the uh, the shark in Jaws, you know. Yeah. And and like that's why I, I think uh, you know the 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 kind of first chunk of the 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 movie the show was uh you know kind of playing off the uh, almost like the poltergeist feel of just like kids or whatever family dealing with the you know haunted house. But one thing I one thing I did want to like mention uh, the way uh, Aston told the story like you see this old kind of gothic house that they moved into and you figure all oh, this was Mr. Boogity's house. It's actually not. It's just that he appears like on that land so any house that's been built there over the years he'll appear at mm-hmm. now this is like Richard Mazur up to his like his old tricks he dresses up like a yeti uh, with a beach bow a beach towel on his cape <laughs> to scare the children and he's saying boogity boogity so he he he, he he's like kind of like impersonating Mr. Boogity 
Uh, but, uh, you know, it doesn't work. The kids don't fall for it because they know Mr. Boogity wouldn't look like a Yeti. They also know their dad probably just does that every time they come home. Exactly. I have to say, like, as fun and magical as it would be to have a dad like this, constantly joking around with gags and props, it probably would get old after, like, a few well, months. This is, this is the one scene where, like, I, I briefly take back what I said, because he is being kind of a bad dad in this scene, because his kids are, like, really, obviously, they're clearly worried about something, and they keep trying to explain it to him, and he keeps cutting them off just to show them new gags. He's really not being very supportive here. Yeah. Like, he knocks over a box with styrofoam peanuts, and he's like, oh, they have a shop vac. He's like, oh, let me vacuum that up. But it's not a real vacuum cleaner. It's just a, a basically a cardboard clown pops out of it, the the Gag City. Uh, That's a pretty elaborate gag. you got to buy this whole big, like, fake industrial vacuum just for that. They hollow it out. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the vacuum part of it shoots out ping pong balls. I really do like the the deadpan reaction of the of the three kid actors yeah. though. Like that that's pretty. They're actually they do a good job selling that of just how like annoyed they are with their dad there. And I thought it was weird too because uh, in this uh, this movie, uh, Christy Swanson looked even younger than I even remember her from uh, Deadly Friend. But something about this this scene when especially when they first came in and it was kind of dark, she kind of had like pale face. Kind of remind me of her character when it comes back to the de- in from the dead and Deadly Friend. Like, I had a lot of weird, uh, I guess just because literally she was about the same age when she filmed both movies. And uh, being in love with Alan Thicke, too, that was also the common denominator. But I had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, flashbacks to this and Deadly Friend. Because Deadly Friend also was pretty much like a soundstage uh, backlot type movie. Mm-hmm. The uh, Even like the, the, the gag mummy that's about to come into play here just yeah. like looks like the mummy in Midnight Hour. Uh, oh, exactly. I know that was like actually a like a, a real mummy but and then if i'm remembering correctly i think this would have been filmed just like about a year after the midnight hour would have been filmed mm-hmm. so very possible like yeah so yeah so the the gag mummy which is pretty much his mummy clothes like on a dummy like now mr boogie's using all his power i thought this mummy was pretty cool like the way he starts dancing around and stuff and then, of course, the, ru- the rubber monster hands are flying around the air. I'm kind of surprised they couldn't, they did, they, they actually resisted not doing a uh, thriller. It's a little bit thriller esque, the dance the mummy does. It is. They're probably worried about getting sued. Yeah, and then he just claps on the floor. I actually like the way he claps on the floor. I think the actor playing the mummy did a good job. What do you think about this reaction? Like, um, I guess it's something we've seen before, but, you know, finding out your house is haunted. And, well, I mean, to be fair, most of the family wants to leave. I think Richard Mazur is just like, no, no, no. Like, yes, I do now believe that we are being haunted, but let's solve it by just all getting sleeping bags and all sleeping in the living room. Is this his, like, ongoing plan that let's do this every night? I mean, he's, like, very weird in that, like, he's, like, not a practical guy at all because he's always pulling jokes. But then when it comes to, like, serious, you know, resolutions to the mr boogity honey problem like yeah he he's very conservative here oh let's just stay here we'll stay the night we'll sleep in sleeping bags which is also what you always see in all the conjuring poltergeist type movies as well so and and then and then when you said about him being a bad dad like okay now like the whole family including the parents they actually have evidence of mr boogity honey so what does he do no no let's sleep here we'll be safe in the the living room he gets a fire going so they're by fire you know 
campfire light, whatever, flickering, and he tells scary stories and trying to scare them more. Like, motherfucker, why are you trying to scare kids who have witnessed actual paranormal activity? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's not taking the situation very seriously. But what would, what else could you expect from the proprietor of Gag City? You know, exactly. This oh. guy, speaking of Joker, you know, this guy's like a failed comedian. No, oh, so he yeah. started this like you know novelty company. Well, Faustino getting in on it with the rubber hands. Yeah, he he's like the true uh, Arthur Fleck here. <laughs> they, they like I, like I well, I guess we should go ahead and say it. You know, there is a sequel to this that you know we mentioned is is longer, or whatever. But uh, unfortunately, I guess because you know Deadly Friend or something else had to be shot soon. Uh, unfortunately, I think the only one that doesn't return is Christy Swanson, right? No, no, no. None of the none of the kids come back. Oh, all all, th- all three of the kids are recast in the sequel. Yeah. Okay. And John Aston is recast as well. It's just Mazar and Mimi Kennedy that come back, and and Mr. Boogity. Oh man, that sucks. Yeah. No, I'm actually kind of glad that we are waiting a year to. Uh, <laughs> I should say it was it was it was at least my plan to uh, do Mr. Boogity now and do the sequel Bride of Boogity next year. Hopefully, that's a promise we can keep. But uh, well, and then I'm sure this episode will be so popular that by the time we get to the third year, they'll probably have rebooted the whole franchise. Yeah. Well, that too, and this episode would probably be so popular that I'll I'll just be like, Trev, the fans are demanding it. So probably February we'll have to come back and we'll be forced to go and do Bride of Boogity. Yeah. And then when they do Boogity 3000 starring Jared Leto, we'll come back oh, for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jared Leto, man. Hot as a uh, firecracker right now in the, in the film game, I'd say. Resurrecting all the dead franchises. Now this is where, like, I mean, they saw the mummy dance. They saw the hands flying around the room. But I would say this is like where the mom really gets uh, mostly invested to the honey because she's going to make herself a uh, bread, craft singles cheese, and what looks to be a bell pepper sandwich here in the <laughs> middle of the night. Yeah. When she sits down and just, just starts unwrapping the cheese, I thought it was going to be like it reminded me of the Simpsons episode where Homer just gets up and he's like, mm, hundred slices of American cheese and just. Yeah, I was going to say, this had flashbacks to me because, like, in a weird way, because, like, like, once I got old enough to shop, like, for myself, whatever, I never bought Kraft Singles Cheese. Uh, and I get the I get the appeal of Kraft Singles Cheese. Talk about something that I loved as a kid. would just sit there and pull them out of the fridge, eat them one by one. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I couldn't do Kraft Singles. Where are you at with Kraft Singles Cheese? No, I'm Tra- saying, I think when you're a kid, it seems like the height of, like, yeah, this is great. And then as you get older and you actually start having real cheese, you're like, wait, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah, it just tastes like a, almost like, a, I don't know if it's because it's wrapped in the plastic, but it almost takes on a plasticky texture. Mm-hmm. Now, I got to give props to this scene where the mom comes in. And now we start getting, like, the full backstory of, like, okay, it wasn't just, you know, Mr. Boogity whatever haunting you know, or chasing after this woman and then you know his his cloak went crazy and made his house disappear like there's even deeper backstory which is like we're probably getting i'd say close we're definitely past the halfway point probably close to the two-thirds mark and they're still revealing more boogity backstory here the the widow that he was after she had a son um he like i didn't really understand the whole thing of like the house blew up the house disappeared but it basically killed all three of them, um, him, uh, Boogie D, the widow, and the little boy. So the little boy somehow became a ghost trapped in the house, and the mom was mm-hmm. trapped outside the house. She couldn't get to the boy. So yeah, like, and he's, he's keeping the boy from her. Yeah, for 300 years, she says. So like, the, it's, it's literally going into the dramatic realm of a ghost mom missing a ghost child. And I got to say, like the one thing I really liked about Mr. Boogie D just in general was... Um, 
I like these old school special effects. Like I just I don't know why. I just like like a a pink glowing ghost. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Also Ghost Mom, pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. Like uh like I I I I was when I was looking at the cast list, apparently this actress uh was uh, very highly sought after at the time. A lot of people liked her, it seemed like there's some decent guy. I like the gag too of her saying like he preventeth me and the mom being like, well, how dareth he? There's, there's yeah. some okay kid humor in here. Yeah, some good corny humor in it. And I also like that she comes in and tells the family. And again, we see like even though she's the only one that encountered that, the the whole family, including the dad, just just buys it. Right? They're yeah. they're all on board now. And speak like um, and speaking of, like jokes that actually work. I like uh, the bit here too where they're going up the steps and the, the whole family is like, well, what if he like just blows us up and they don't, <laughs> right. they all turn around? I think that's a good joke too. Yeah. And I have to say like, I mean, it is cool. And obviously, like we said, they had a, a, you know, a condensed running time here. So, you know, it's like bang, bang, bang. This, this thing's like really going fast now. But um, I did like it where, you know, the, the concept that now finally the whole family, you know, cause now, now that they know the whole story, the whole family bonds together to go get Mr. Boogity. But I got to say, they pick like the worst freaking weapons possible. Like mm-hmm. Richard Mazur just basically has a, a, a long version of a fly swatter. The mom has a broom. Like none of this shit would hurt anybody. Like the, the uh, at least Foster, you know, I mean, it, granted it's plastic. It's one of those bop T-ball bats. But at least I know from a kid, at least those kind of sting when you get hurt, hit with them. I mean, you never know. I saw the 2016 Ghostbusters and according to that film, you can stab a ghost with a knife and kill it. So <laughs> should have just grabbed like fork stuff instead. <laughs> yeah, speaking of... Uh... I guess we'll talk about it after Mr. Boogie concludes, but I'm I'm looking forward to my new favorite podcast talking about Ghostbusters 2016. So yeah, so the little boys break off here because the one little boy went down into the basement. He got you know attracted by something. Something lured him down there. So Faustina goes down there, and I thought this was a good touch too. And like basically, you have like the mom, the dad, and Christy Swanson. And like, what was Christy Swanson going to do? Is she going to um? shoot hairspray into mr boogity's eyes or like what was going i was wondering on? if she has like a lighter too and she's gonna right. do the old like you know blast them with the uh the fire the fire yeah yeah i thought that too but i, I like i can't recall seeing her with the lighter or anything else now it's interesting because right there um christy swanson calls him mr hamburger face but we yeah. as the audience have not seen him yet we know she's yeah. seen him but we haven't so it sets up an expectation and i guess it lives up to it and i think earlier there was a line about he has a face like a grilled cheese sandwich mm-hmm. and like i think that's actually the uh the the part of the description of mr boogity having a grilled cheese sandwich that's like on the dvd or at least on the dvd yeah so so i just reminded myself there if you go on ebay this uh, there was a double feature dvd not a blu-ray just a dvd of mr boogity and the bride of boogity and i seen this thing going for 50 60 bucks on ebay like of course nobody's really paying that but people are trying to sell it for that much but it's a Disney movie club exclusive and like, cause my girlfriend or I should say my fiance is a member of Disney uh, movie club. We looked it up yesterday. You can buy it from Disney movie club for 10 bucks. Now, obviously, oh. yeah, the catch is you have to be a member and you have to agree to buy so many, you know, whatever. But I think it's kind of slimy that people are buying it from the Disney movie club, jacking it up five times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially considering it will always be on Disney plus. Exactly. Know. Exactly. Yeah, especially with it being on Disney Plus, uh, I'd you'd kind of shocked that um, people are cho- still trying to scalp it. Like, okay, like maybe you can make a little bit of scratch selling it for twenty, maybe double the price, you know. But 
mm-hmm. five times. I, I, I feel bad for anybody who's paid fifty dollars to see Mister Boogity. I mean, not that it's not worth you're not, it. You're, but, you're not even getting. No, you're not even getting a four K restoration or anything on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just. You're not even getting a one K restoration. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, like I'm, I'm not going to bullshit here when I watch this. When uh, Faustino goes down into the basement, because I kind of like knew that Boogie D was tricking the parents up there, and like you know the kids got separated. This is like the only moment where I really kind of felt the tension right here. Mm-hmm. Like, like look at that Faustino uh, scared look on the face before it cuts the commercial. That's some good kid acting there. Yeah, and even like I, you know, the, the idea of going down and like thinking his brother has like been taken, and right. yeah, it, this 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 sells, you know. Yeah. Here we get some good, I guess, what you call rotoscoping cartoon effects. Of uh, yeah, so so now the younger brother is actually fighting with the ghost boy, and again, I love these these this style of special effects. I miss this, you know. I would say this style of special effects was pretty much gone by the early '90s. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, this boy looks like he walked off the set of Tron. Yeah, yeah, just has it. Just literally has like the glow around himself that's been rotoscoped in. But I don't know. That was like such a common thing. Like, like I feel like the last, and you know, we're going like late '80s, early '90s. But I think the last like movie series that really used that style of special effect like a lot was uh, probably the Warlock movies. Mm, yeah. So yeah. So also too, like they always hear sneezing. It's because this little ghost boy sneezes. He was the one who stole the teddy bear. It actually wasn't Mister Boogity. Like how how did this play at your heartstrings, Trev? Like once you see like the cute little boy, and then he's talking with these other boys. Like, did you get into the drama of like the the ghost boy <laughs> missing his mom and everything? Um, I can't say I got into that drama. I got I was more into the drama of the mom crying outside about not being able to get to her boy. But um, when you're when you're asking that the the dramatic heft to rely on the shoulders of child actors, it's sometimes yeah. not as effective. Yeah, I agree with that. But but I mean, I would I would definitely say these these kids are a uh, cut above what you normally see, especially nowadays. I don't I don't know what it is. Maybe I don't know. Like maybe it was because things were different back then, or what? Like maybe you could spend more time rehearsing. Like you know, maybe the laws changed. But in general, I'm going to go that the the best generation for maybe child actors overall was the 80s. Like usually when you see mm-hmm. kids in movies now, they're they're not as good. Yeah, I mean, I think back to like days like, um, well, I think there are some really good child actors nowadays, like McKenna Grace and when, you know the ones that get put in everything. But yeah, when you're talking about like. Corey Feldman and Macaulay Culkin days, then sure. I think it was like it was just seemed like there was like they were being pumped out more back then. Right. A lot of a lot of stage parents wanting their kids to be actors in the eighties. Well, just like uh and granted we're talking a little bit older than these kids are in here, but like I mean, damn man, like look like look at something like the child cast of like Stand By Me or Explorers, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. damn, some some heavyweights there. Now, I, I really did like this, that Mr. Boogie, we should say we're, we're getting close to the 39-minute mark where he appears now. He's uh, laying the family a siege in the downstairs of the house. Uh, I do like that he actually like keeps grabbing these props that, that, that we've seen before and making them fly around and do creepy stuff. Yeah, I mean, they asked for it. They brought, they brought him a lot of props to play with. Yeah, they did. And I, I like it that he's like, oh, you think all these chopped off hands and shit are funny? Well, like, I'll make them move for real. They'll be real dead hands now. Oh, here he is, finally in all his glory. And Mr. Bo- okay, so the ghost mom had a pink glow. The little boy ghost had a blue go. Glue, uh, I can't even talk. Blue glow. 
Now, Mr. Boogity, because he has, like, nasty skin, like, he has the, like, I'd say the Karloff green glow. Mm-hmm. And when we see Mr. Boogie, he's straight up levitating. I like this gag where he shoots the green electricity and makes everybody's hair go up. Yeah, it's a it's a funny, uh, fun visual. What do you think of Mr. Boogity in general in terms of like a makeup design and uh, like he's actually like for a little for something clearly meant for little kids. Um, he's kind of scary looking, I'd say. I, I'm not gonna lie, like I kind of wanted to be in Mr. Boogity because I thought the the whatever the. I don't know what you call it now, the artwork, the whatever with it with the face. I thought like it looked terrible on like the little icon you see on Disney Plus and like on the DVD cover because they use the same artwork for DVD cover. But when I saw it in motion on the show, like and saw like how flexible it was and how the actor mm-hmm. was actually able to move his face, like I was actually into it. I, I mean, he's getting a thumbs up for me, uh, Mister Boogity. Like I like I I mean, obviously it's um more in line with the TV quality makeup job and not like a feature film one. But it's it's pretty damn close. Yeah. Like, I've seen way worse in direct-to-video movies of the time. It's too bad this didn't take off, and he could have become more of, like, a classic, you know, movie villain. We could have got Freddy versus Jason versus Boogity. Yeah, we, we could. I bet Disney would have held that up. So here we have Boogity attack. Like, I like Faustino man's up, and he, he, he grabs, like, the shovel from the fireplace to hit Mr. Boogity. But then Mr. Boogity turns it actually into a balloon. I thought that was a bizarre choice. <laughs> Which uh, starts pulling Faustino up off the ground. It's obviously some type of harness. But it's really the kid actor doing it. It's really David Faustino doing it. Kid's not smart enough to just let go. No, no. You know, kids are dumb. So. Well, like, yeah, they, they keep t- yelling at him to drop. But he says something about, I can't, like, uh, I can't let go or something like that. But it, I mean, uh, maybe it was because he was too scared. I don't know. I thought this was funny. He makes Richard Mazur, who's he's getting on a ladder to try to help his son get down. He's, um... He's, like, running in place on the ladder. I thought that was strange. Mm-hmm. Stuck in, like, a time loop, I guess. Yeah. See, like, if I would, if you were going to make Mr. Boogity a recurring character, I think you would have to, like, have something happen to where he could actually leave this house and he could, like, haunt the whole town, too. Maybe it would have gone, and maybe it's a good thing it didn't happen, because maybe it would have gone in, like, a direction of, like, the Beetlejuice cartoon where he just becomes a good guy and starts oh, yeah. teaming up with the kids, you know? No, yeah. like The like, redemption of Boogity, you know? Yeah, I would like it where Boogity was more like uh, he was always bad, and he was, like, you know, maybe finding new monsters to come help him to team up. He could whatever. be, like, like he could, he could be, like, the boss hog of this town, you know? Like a ghost boss hog, basically. That would be pretty good, actually. All right, all right, all right. Just a recurring nuisance for our heroes. So, Mr. Boogity, he takes the... Uh, Mr. Boogity, he kind of does himself in, wouldn't you say? He does, yeah. Because he makes the... But to fa- be fair, he's a pilgrim. He doesn't know what a vacuum cleaner is, you know? That's true. But what I was going to say, the way they explained it before, this is like my one like problem with Mr. Boogity, the, the, the movie, is um they kind of set it up that that wasn't a real vacuum cleaner, I felt like. Yeah. Well, don't worry about the logic here. Yeah, but Mr. Boogity turns into a real one, which then he like he's using it to try to suck the little boy up or whatever, but then it, it, it actually sucks up his cloak, which is the source of his power. Now, when they took the cloak off and you see Mr. Boogity's like long, nasty pilgrim hair, I actually thought he looked scarier, like, you know, once you could see his full face and his nasty hair. And I was stuff. wondering if you're going to say what I thought. Like, there's a moment there where there's like kind of like a purple glow on him and he looks like Ivan Ooze from the Power Rangers movie. Yeah, the makeup, the facial makeup is a little bit like Ivan Ooze. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Now, now I think this is funny that like Boogity like disappeared, but like his powers slowly go away. Just for the simple fact that they don't want to drop David Faustino from the ceiling. 
And here's the cardboard clown pops out of the vacuum cleater holding Mr. Boogity's cloak. So we're like, oh, you know, like as long as this cloak is alive, there's always, you know, like, like if I was directing a Mr. Boogity pilot, I would have the camera pan off here to, um, oh, the cloak disappeared too. I would have the camera pan off, uh, like, uh, go over to some eggs sitting in the corner. And that's how I would set up the sequel. Okay, so the the little the little boy ghost and the mom ghost uh, are hugging here. They're back. They're reunited because Boogity's been banished. Oh, interesting that that their glow went from pink and uh, blue to now it's just like regular white kind of. Yeah, they're just like angels now. I'm surprised they don't sprout wings and yeah, fly off. Pilgrim angels. It'd be it'd be funny if they like they ruined the uh, like the the sentiment here if like the the mom. A ghost just start saying racist stuff about the Indians. <laughs> Sparkling away. Boo. Yeah, people would have, ghosts were always turned into little balls back in the day, too, I noticed. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's because everyone always, you know, the thing where you always have friends who say, like, I took a picture of a ghost, and they show it to you, and it's just like a little glow, like a little yeah. glowing ball on the photo. Yeah, so it's like, how did you know that was a ghost? Maybe it was a ghost of a moth. <laughs> Yeah, and now Richard Mays is going to break out some shit. Be like, oh, we all know there's no such thing as ghosts. Then you hear Mr. Boogity yell at him. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's the sequel bait. Wink. The the little cardboard clown winked. And Mays yeah. was like, what? Holy shit. I mean, in a different, I might have, uh, in a different world, I might have done this as an episode of my new show, but nope, this no. actually got a sequel. You know, I was, I was actually thinking that too. I'm like, oh yeah, it was a failed pilot because you always read it's a failed pilot. What were? It's actually not failed because it lived on yeah. forever and they had a sequel. Yeah. That makes me wonder, like, how many of those like Magical World of Disney specials were just like pilots that they kind of had sitting around, or right. or what, or was it an idea of like. I don't, I don't quite know how Magical World of Disney works. So it was a weekly yeah. series, whereas like a, you know, an anthology series. But was the idea that if any of them really took off, that they would be like, okay, we're now gonna kind of spin that off into an ongoing of its own. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's pretty hard to say, honestly, because um, I used to watch it quite a bit, and like I used to watch it. Um, uh, I think there was like different versions because I think there was some versions also too where like they would play like a full length movie, but. Um, if it's the same thing, was that the one Michael Eisner hosted in the eighties? Um, I can't remember if that's the one or not. That might be the Sunday whatever movie of the week or whatever. But like, yeah. But if, uh, apparently, uh, Mister Boogity, um, uh, after its initial airing, like, it seemed like it gained a little bit of a cult following because it got re-aired for years later on the Disney Channel, right? Yeah, because I'm actually thinking, like, I remember seeing it as a kid, but I don't think I saw it in 86 when first it first run. aired i feel like i saw yeah i think i saw it later on it's like in, in when it was being rerun and I, in fact i think i saw it at a time where they would show both of them together right yeah i was gonna say like when the sequel popped out um they probably like were just showing it again and again as well the original mr boogity mm-hmm. but yeah i actually liked this it was a it, you know I, i'm not gonna lie with the first time viewing I was a little, you know, I was kind of sitting there checking my watch. Where's Boogity? Where's Boogity? Okay, where's Boogity? You know, because, like, I mean, it's Mr. Boogity. You think, you think you're going to see his hijinks nonstop. And then when I saw, oh, it's only 45 minutes. They better cram in a lot of Mr. Boogity. They take their time with it. But there's, but afterwards, I was like, oh, there still was a lot of parts I liked. I liked the kids. I liked the family. Yeah, you, no, you it know. is fun. I think, I think in particular for families, I think, you know, actually, I just saw that it originally aired in April. So it's not quite the Halloween special right. I thought it was. But, uh. 
But I think if you've got like young kids and if you do, you've probably already got Disney Plus. I think it's a fun thing to throw on in October for sure. Oh, yeah, especially now. Like I'm sure and I'm sure it was probably shown probably even that year, uh, 86, whatever. Mm-hmm. It probably was re-aired at Halloween time, too. But uh, yeah, it definitely has that great Halloween special uh, feel to it. Um, I kind of just like that as a trope too. I know you do too. Like just like the kind of not super extreme, um, more PG level family in a haunted house. Like it that right. always appeals to me. Yeah. And also too, it's um, you know, uh, without going too deep into the discussion, like you know, I'm very uh, not into PG thirteen horror for the most part. Some movies pull it off. I feel like most don't. I feel like I feel like there's like a line where a movie's trying to be very graphic and very whatever, but it's just pulling its punches a little bit in order to get a PG thirteen rating. And I think I think what some of those like whatever. I mean, obviously, I think that's a case of filmmakers, studios, whatever, trying to have their cake and eat it too. But mm-hmm. I, I think there's also like there's sh- it's like yeah, there should be PG horror as well. It's like yeah, if, you know, like there's the whole audience of kids that can be into it. But also, too, um, there's, our, like, our whole generation that just, like, literally watches horror nonstop. So it doesn't matter. Like, even if we go into it knowing it's a little more youth-friendly, like, I still think you have a good si- size of an audience that will watch it just for fun. And, like, in a weird way, it's kind of fun to watch these kid ones, um, you know, and and you get your kind of, like, horror feel, and you get to see some cool special effects, you get to see some cool characters, but, like, it's kind of fun just to relax and watch horror and not be too, like, tense or overly concerned or, like, overly yeah, worked that, up about it. That's one thing I'll give Disney. They they did, like, a really good job of that kind of stuff for a really long time. I mean, even just now when Mr. Boogie stopped playing on my Disney Plus, the, the, the next recommendation was something from 2000 called Phantom of the Megaplex. Yeah. <laughs> which has that same look. And then I'm just thinking about, how, like, you know, they did, like, the Halloween Town movies and things like that. And, um, and then, you know, not that it's all Disney, but thinking back to shows like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, right. I, I still like throwing those on like I'm you know I'm almost 40 and I, I think it's I think it's fun to just kind of sometimes like you said you don't have to pay as much attention you can kind of throw your tone turn your brain off a little bit but it's still in that horror realm um, you still get to see cool ghosts sometimes really cool monster makeup in those because yep. um, those aren't as full of like CGI and stuff uh, yeah I, I and I agree I think I think gateway horror is is not um, done as often today as it should be because little kids people forget kids like being scared Oh, exactly. And, like, I, I think another thing, too, is, like, there's different levels of fear. And mm-hmm. whereas we can kind of just watch this and have fun, like, it's, like, that thing where, like, kids can get into it. They can get, like, a little, you know, and I think it's really the, you know, because it was how I was with a kid with horror movies, even though I was watching, like, the R-rated ones, too, was it's, like, that thing of, like, just the subject matter interests you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. like it's very fantastical it's going to grab a kid's imagination but at the same time there's nothing really graphic on screen that's going to happen that's going to no. leave lasting you know negative you know whatever but nobody loves monsters more than little kids all right so, yeah. yeah like like i you know we've been through the endless whatever iterations of the failed versions of dark universe maybe universal should lean into doing almost like the remaking those movies almost with like a goosebumps type feel to them well i know like universal's kind of now they're taking like a let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach with the monsters and some of the things that have been announced are uh i know they're doing one that's like the monster mash which is like a like a a musical comedy with the monsters I'm, i'm wondering if maybe that will be aimed at like a younger audience yeah that could be fun 
but even like the, I don't know if you've seen, I actually really like it. Two of the, two of the three hotel Transylvania movies are, are fun. Um, you know, and just like the idea of using like the monsters in that kind of way. I think it's, it's cool to like, the, there was definitely a period there where I felt like the original monsters were getting a little forgotten. Oh um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, it's cool that something like hotel Transylvania kind of brought them back. And I think they should always be a part of like every generation of kids, because I definitely, a big part of my introduction to horror when I was a kid was going to the library and checking out these books that were actually, um, basically just like kid novelizations of the old mon- the universal monster movies. And so I think like when you're a kid, you definitely like Dracula, Frankenstein, the Gill man, all those are, are so appealing. No. Yeah. I was all about the classic universal monsters. Uh, you know, they had some, um, had some like little merchandise i had like a glow in the dark frankenstein i had tons and tons of books i mean a lot of them mm-hmm. I would, like i would get at like used bookstores that were just monster base and uh i still actually have some of them but like and i think it's key to like get, i think it's key to get kids into them because i think yeah and you, you i'm sure you've seen it happen too if someone spends most of their life watching modern horror and then watches their first you know universal monster movie when they're like 25 they're just like this is stupid <laughs> right right, right. but when, if, you, if you get into it when you're young you'll like love them for the rest of your life yeah because you gotta imagine when these movies came out for the most part um you know the movie going audience was like in terms of cinematically were, was much less sophisticated so like something even though it's like one of like the the way later ones even something like creature from the black lagoon it was grabbing people's attention in a way that like you know, here's this creature, it lives somewhere, like, it's, like, plausible that's maybe somewhere in the world this could exist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the original movie audience was terrified by a train coming at them, right, so, you know, right. standards change over time. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so, since since Mr. Boogity was obviously not full feature length, we figured, uh, and we didn't want to do it at the top of the show to let you uh, real Boogity fans who, uh, you know, were doing a flyby to hear some people uh, dissect Mr. Boogity. We just had some loose, random topics. Uh, a couple of these I've been meaning to bring up just the last few times I talked to Trev, but didn't get to him. So, I guess probably the strictly Boogity talk is uh, done for now. So, uh, if you don't want to hear random talk, you're, you're welcome to uh, tune out now, but... There's Before we get into anything, though, go. Let me just say, we, yeah. you and I need to be very careful because yeah. we, we've been we've been a curse lately um, oh, in our, yeah. some of our previous recordings. So we should take a moment, <sighs> yeah. Because in our previous two episodes we did together, uh, or at least recorded together, yeah. um, we discussed two actresses that we both yeah. really liked, um, Kelly Preston and Linda Manns, and we yeah. we just recently lost both of them. So I just want to take a moment to say, rest in peace. Uh, both both really tragic. Both like way before their time. Yeah. Um, yeah and uh just uh oh man like uh really cancer so yeah yeah i can't obviously cancer sucks uh i think everybody's lost somebody to cancer but uh yeah just really weird and uh i had uh recently uh while i was working or whatever and um thrown on uh christine just to listen to the commentary track and like yeah like just just seeing kelly preston again and that and just like I don't know, like, I I think these are, like, both Kelly Preston and Linda Manns are obviously very different careers, very different performers, but I think in a weird way, I think they were both, like, like that that actually might be the two most underrated uh, actresses of the 80s, and, like, if you look at Kelly Preston, I just think uh, I have great respect for uh, actors who are kind of typecast in a certain role, but they pull it off, like, tremendously. So, like, Kelly Preston went through this whole, like, line in the early 80s mid 80s of being like the pretty girl in the movies and stuff but like she was ballsy i mean whether it be doing nude scenes or like 
like the character she played in Mischief or just being like the perfect dream girl and like Christine and like I always really loved the one secret admirer with her and uh, C. Thomas Howe and uh, Lori Loughlin. Like even though she was playing the same type of role, like all those movies in my mind at least uh very um very different portrayal very different just just i mean just a real act like almost like i want to say she was almost like a character actor because she was like never really the lead but she was always there to like the way she was her character was plugged into the story it always like perfectly fit the plot like i mean you just couldn't ask for any more than Obviously, on our um, Forgotten Films of the 80s, uh, we talked, and actually, yeah, and then we talked about Linda Manns again on The Warriors versus The Wanderers. I mean, just somebody, Linda Manns, somebody you cannot take your eyes off. I mean, literally. Mm-hmm. The voice, yeah, very, just everything. Very, very brief career, but, like, just stands out so much in those, like, three films that she made yeah. in that time. Um, and then came back for just very briefly to be in um, Gummo and, I think, The Game, right? She has, like, a yeah, brief appearance in that. But I mean, I'm happy. I mean, I guess I'm happy for her that she was able to, um, you know, step away from this crap world that can be showbiz. And it sounds like she had a pretty good, like, just normal life after that for a yeah. bit. So that's it's always nice to see when people do get away from it. And uh, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it sure seems like she had a good family life after that. So. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, obviously, and I mean, yikes. Uh, it did just for you know, the, I'm at a loss for words of how spooky that was. You know what I mean? yeah so i was just telling somebody last night it's like we're we're like almost like a curse you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i'm afraid for so, christy swanson yeah, now. i was gonna say watch out swanson <laughs> yeah jeez but uh but yeah so i mean that sucks but i mean just two amazing amazing talents and um i i, I guess since we were talking about disney plus a little while by the time this airs because um full disclosure we recording this probably about a good four weeks before it's going to air um just because we had availability in our schedules or whatnot. But um, it's been announced. It's going to happen very soon in the next week or so. It already happened by the time you guys will hear this. But there was this move of, obviously, the world we're living in right now um, to put an A-list picture on video on demand for $30. We're talking about Mulan, Disney+, Plus, whatever. And uh, I just wanted to pick your brain about this, Trev, because... As much as like the media is spinning in this, like, oh, this is like revolutionary technology. It's never been done. You never paid $30 to watch an A list picture in your own living room before. It's so blah, blah, blah. To me, this was really like, it's just weird because this really seems like an out, like, it's like this, this idea, this concept of an A list picture for a premium price. They call it premium VOD. This seems like it's already like outdated to me. And what I mean by that is, uh, I think we're pretty much, uh, and obviously you can still individually purchase, rent movies, whatever, digitally. But I think for the most part, as like a movie like watching society, I think we've pretty much all migrated over to the subscription model. Like I just, this seems like a fuddy-duddy old idea to me. To to, to for just one movie, you're going to pay thirty dollars when, you know, if you have the internet capability or whatever, the streaming box, whatever, to watch Disney's Mulan for thirty bucks. I feel like you probably already subscribed to. A, a couple other services for 10 bucks a month that have hundreds and thousands of hours of programming that you're always probably trying to catch up on. I mean, what do you, is it, does this seem like as cutting edge to you as it does the press or what do you think, Trev? I mean, I kind of agree with you, especially since you're talking about like, it's not just $30, but you have to already be a subscriber to Disney plus. So, I mean, you're already paying for a streaming service and then it's additional 30. And then I've seen right. people make that argument of saying like, well, yeah, but that 30, 
And I have mixed feelings about the overall approach, but people, the, the go-to argument is always that, well, this makes sense for like a family because that's cheaper than a family going to the theater, which I agree with. And obviously Mulan is a family film. But as you just said, you know, kids, young kids are fairly easy to entertain. And there's tons of other stuff on Disney Plus that you already have to show them, you know? Right. And just things you could, all, you could turn on that aren't Mulan. Uh, I think what like bothers me about it, that, that high price point, I, I, I personally find it like a little ridiculous. And I, again, I get it that, so this also depends on a lot of factors. Um, so I think this is even different between me and you goat, but in my hometown, we still have a few theaters that actually do very cheap matinees. And so when people say, well, like, it, and I don't have to pay for parking at them cause it, they're just suburban theaters with big parking lots. Mm-hmm. So for when I hear people say like, well, that's, I mean, $30 is so much cheaper than it is for me to go to the movies with my family. It's like, not for me, it's not, I could go see right. Mulan in a matinee show for about $8 and, you know, barely spend any gas getting over there and then park for free. Um, and, but I get like when you when you put together the whole family, right? Obviously, it's a little bit cheaper. But what about? And this is why this is why I'm surprised Disney didn't think about this because if Amazon can do this, I'm pretty sure Disney can. So their whole thing is they're saying you're paying thirty dollars for basically like early access to Milan. Essentially, right. um, you get it, and then it's, you have it until it goes on to the streaming service, just in general. But why not put an option of say ten or fifteen dollars just for like getting it for twenty four hours or something, right? Because right. I, as a single person who actually am kind of interested in Mulan. I'm not going to pay $30 to get early access to it, but you might've got $10 for me just to, for me to rent it. You know, right. Um, it, there definitely should have been different options on it. Like, like to me, it's just like, it's just, I don't know. Like, I mean, I hear what you're saying about the price, but to me, it just, it's such an outdated model. Cause like pretty much what they're asking, I mean, granted the movies weren't 30 bucks, but it, pretty much what they're asking is just, you know, it's like, it's just basically pay-per-view which which i mean we've had since i was a little kid at least i mean i well, don't the other thing too is and they're not they're not saying much about this and this is what i'm very curious about so when they said because at first people were like really freaking out when they announced it because it was like 30 dollars for a rental and then it was like the next day disney came out and said no well, let us clarify it's not just a rental you're like unlocking it and you yeah. have like constant access to it but at the same time you only you have constant access to it until it just becomes part of the regular disney plus streaming service and that which which point everybody has it and like my guess is that that's what do you think? How long do you think Disney's actually going to like hold off on that? I bet by right. Christmas it'll be up as just part of the regular rotation. So essentially, you've paid for to have it well, exclusive for a couple of months. You know. Well, it's like I don't want to go too much down this road because we've talked about this in the past on different things about you know the health of the movie theaters and the streaming. How big is it really, and all this kind of stuff? But what I will say is we are in the streaming wars right now, and uh, they're really not wars as much as they're just pretty much a widespread annihilation. Like. But I think Disney Plus is are the pretty much the only ones who have done well in it. Whereas like Netflix is like billions in debt. Um, HBO Max is a complete flop. It only added about five percent extra, whatever. And I think I think with HBO Max, the lesson learned was the messaging of what HBO Max was got very confusing to people who already had HBO Go, HBO Now, whatever. And I think I think Disney's. M- like as for this one little one-time thing, whatever. I think they're really going to kind of mess up their um, their marketing messaging. Which whereas like before, it's like okay, you put in your credit card to Disney Plus, seven bucks a month, whatever it is. You 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 turn it on, and now it's going to be like, yeah, you get access to like most of the movies, but then there's some movies you pay extra. Like it's just like. I think it's just totally going to like confuse people more than like, and I understand that they've got probably, I'm sure Mulan is probably like a $200 million film just sitting on the shelf that they can't collect revenue off of. 
But I think I think it's just like you're trading like nickels now for dollars later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's almost it's, like you almost wonder if it would have been better for them to just. I mean, who knows? But you wonder like just throw it onto the service just to see if you increase subscribers. Then I said, well, they're not making any profit that way. Well, then maybe actually, uh, you know, no one. I don't think anyone would be shocked if Disney did something like this. But maybe actually get advertisers to pay and say, well, when you watch Mulan. First, you do have to sit through about four commercials or something, you yeah. know, and just and just bring in revenue that way. Yeah, it just, it just I just think it's uh, adding new wrinkles to the to the deal, the consumers' deal. That's you know probably not going <laughs> to add up to much. But I, I just I just thought it was weird that they thought it was so mind blowing, and I'm like, nah, this shit's been around forever, and it's not really, you know. Like, if this was really, like, the, you know, and again, I understand desperate times call for desperate measures, but, like, mm-hmm. if this was really the answer to things, I think I think this would have been done before now, you know what I mean? It's, and it's not going to work for every movie equally either, right? Like, what no. works for Mulan's not going to work for, a, like, a, you know, a James Bond film exactly. or um, or a lower kind of mid-budget film, you know, you gotta you got to figure this out. And it's just, like you said, it's, it's just, just going to get more confusing overall when all these different movies start trying to sell themselves to different streaming services. Yeah, and I, I think too. Um, say what you say, you know about theatrical model or whatever. It's been very, um, very lucrative for Disney in recent years. They, they've been the number one studio at it, and I think a big part of that is like these things kind of become event films based on the marketing anticipation. And I feel like, you know, by doing this with Mulan, like it almost takes Mulan out of like the Lion King Beauty and the Beast category of remakes and puts it into the Lady and the Tramp remake where it's like, yeah, it's on Disney plus. And uh, I know, which is too bad because it's honestly like it's the, it's the first one of the live action remakes I've actually been looking forward to. Right. Cause it's the only one I've seen the trailer for and thought like, wow, that looks like a real movie. Like, and I know they like dropped the songs and dropped like the cartoon dragon. So they kind of did change around a little bit, but it looks very, to me, it looks really good. And like, I've never been interested in any other live action ones. Well, I really thought from the previews that I thought they were going to, uh, I thought this was going to be their swing at the Oscar fences and all. Yeah, it, it looks like that kind of movie, right? It looks like yeah. a very legit kind of prestige film. Um, so I, I do feel, I mean, I do feel bad for them. And it's as, as bad as I can feel for a horrible, evil corporation. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, it's not, I should, let me rephrase that i don't feel bad for them but i i feel their pain in that sense of you know they really wanted this movie to be in the theaters and yeah. i'm sure it's i'm sure they're not happy about having to do this it's just yeah. an experiment they kind of have to do yeah i uh well I, I i guess swinging outside of like let's get away from the depressing 2020 theatrical whatever uh this is very late to the party i'm very late to the party but a couple of months ago i watched it chapter two i concluded the it it whatever trilogy i guess and um my sympathies uh, yeah i just wanted to get your take on it trev because uh i mean as you remember i wasn't a fan of all of, of it chapter one it chapter two really caught me by surprise um it chapter one the reason i didn't like it it, it featured a lot of modern horror tropes loud sounds just whatever stuff the the one thing i really can't stand is just the monster running at the camera nonstop. like i feel like that's a trope that's like just so boring to watch Part two, I was like, I put it off for so long because I thought I was really not going to like it. And, like, it was very much a mixed bag for me. I hated every single horror part. Like, I thought in some ways it was even more obnoxious than the first one in terms of, like, all that happened was Pennywise um, basically turned into large CGI characters, creatures, whatever. Like, it was so monotonous and, like, not scary to me. 
but like i gotta say that that grown-up cast really worked on me and like i Mm -hmm. honestly found it like pretty touching as a drama so for a movie where like every other scene was a horror scene which i thought was ridiculous like it surprisingly worked on a dramatic level to me and then like i was just curious what your take is on the director uh, i guess andrea machete uh, he's being hailed as like the new king of horror because it chapter one and two made all this money. I think this guy should switch gears a little bit because I know he got to start with I believe like Mama, but I think this guy should switch gears and go with dramas. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I was really let down by it chapter two. Now, unlike you, I, I like the first one a lot, and, and in, in retrospect, now I'm very happy that um, this isn't a case to me where not liking the sequel ruins the first film for me because I'm I'm happy that it chapter one works as like a standalone piece. Right. You know, it doesn't require the second chapter, um, so I can still revisit the first one. I I, I know what you're saying I I of course recognize what the first one is, but I think I think we've had this talk, but. I did just like it as a roller coaster kind of horror film, which I enjoy those sometimes, you know, like I'm not, I'm not opposed to um, jump scare horror movies. I think they're a fun thing in moderation. I like a good four or five of those every year um, offset with the other kind of a 24 slow burn horrors and, and gore horror. I mean, I'm a horror fan. I I like every subgenre almost. Um, And I thought chapter one was really done well in that kind of, here's just a slam bang uh, roller coaster kind of movie. I thought the problem with part two, and I, I agree with you. I don't think I saw anybody complain about the cast. I think it was a great cast. Um, they were they were each so like representative of the child actors that it was like really well cast, and like they did a, they all did a great job. But man, the tonal whiplash of part two was like ridiculous. And not right. only was the not only were the horror elements far worse in part two, but I'm sure you saw, and I'm, I would imagine you probably disliked as much as I did that. Way more so than the first one. I didn't understand why Muschietti suddenly felt the need to undercut every scare with an instant joke. Right. It was just it was just driving me insane. And like that um, Angel in the Morning bit where that song comes <laughs> yeah. on, that's like the most mind-boggling decision I've seen in a movie in years. And I I still would like love for to hear him explain that because I just I don't I don't know what he was thinking there. And yeah, I just felt like every single scare was just like ruined by a joke instantly. Um, so I really walked away from that not very impressed with the movie but then again i i I knew going in because the second half of the book is not as good and so everybody was kind of worried about this movie because that's just the the weaker part of the book um to your question though yeah i mean i agree i think i you know i don't think any director should get bogged down in one genre if they don't want to um i haven't heard much from him whether he's going to explore other things or not but i could see him doing like a good comedic drama after the work he did in this yeah i mean i just you know for i mean granted they kind of put together an all-star cast and everything for part two but like i'm just like i think this guy's gift is um is actually working with actors and i think i think kind of where he goes off the rails and i don't know if this is like you know studio mandates so we want this we want that but like when this guy tries to do big set pieces uh cgi special effect things i just feel like it always goes really kind of south like the movie suffers for it so i mean i would just like i would almost like uh to see this like i feel like this guy's wheelhouse is actually more something like uh like luca did with um uh call me by your name or whatever i could see that guy doing a a similar especially like a coming of age type story like i don't know i just think this guy's just went on to do suspiria you know so yeah uh, yeah i don't know i'm I'm, i won't be i won't be surprised if uh because you know he made a lot of money for um you know warner brothers obviously with it so i wouldn't be surprised if they court him for a a dc movie soon too 
Um, actually, I'm going to throw out, I, I've talked about this online with some people. So since I have a platform here, uh, maybe I'm sure Warner Brothers executives are listening. Oh, they are. But I, I know they, a couple of them. They are. Yeah. Um, with the DC films, they've actually had some good success bringing in like their horror guys, right? So James Wan directed Aquaman, you make a billion dollars. Um, David Sandberg did, uh, did a Shazam and that went over pretty well. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about how Warner Brothers can't figure out what to do with Superman. Uh-huh. I, I recently found out that Mike Flanagan is like a huge Superman fan. Um, in oh, particular, wow. he said that like his Smallville is like one of his favorite shows of all time. I think they're fools if they're not at least considering asking him to helm a Superman movie. Because one thing he's shown in his horror films is that he's very concerned with character and emotion. And that's kind of what Superman needs. That's what was missing from the, the the Snyder kind of touch of it all, who just wanted to present Superman the badass. Yeah. And I would love to see Flanagan take a shot at that. Uh, and I say that as someone who, like, I'm Flanagan seems someone who, like, everything I hear him talk about, he just wants to stay in horror. And, and I love that. But uh, I'd like to see him, like try that like because i love superman i love flanagan let's let's see if that works no i i agree completely by by the way i just want to make it clear i was kidding when, oh, I, said, yeah. when I said i know warner brothers i just i just, oh, I, I, I meant that as a joke i'm not trying to hoodwink anybody but no but yeah, like yeah like i i agree like i've heard some weird things about machete circling certain projects which i mean who knows how any of that's true but mm-hmm. uh yeah i think you're right about flanagan for sure um I think um, as kind of cool as it was trying to be, I think Brightburn ended up not being that type of movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was. I, I didn't. I don't know. Did you like Brightburn? I wasn't super into it. It it was fine for a movie. I rent it. I watched. Yeah. I took it out. Put it back in the paper sleeve. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. I don't. I don't regret seeing it, but I'll, I'll never revisit it. Yeah, but uh, it chapter two, man. Uh, I can't believe they it, they put it in the the trailers but that scene of the naked lady i mean can we just talk about that the scene of the naked lady running back and through forth through the apartment mm-hmm. what was like the like what like what is the story like logic of pennywise becoming an old woman which i get why he became the old woman and everything but why would she suddenly become naked why would she suddenly run behind where jessica chastain couldn't even like see her or whatever like what was the <laughs> Am I yeah, missing that, something? There? No, it's really where you fall. You do start falling into the trap of like people thinking that like just because something is creepy on screen, it means like that's the they 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 don't care about motivation, right. right? Like oh, it's we know this is a creepy imagery. Oh, people think the scary naked old lady in The Shining is you know creepy, so right. it, it would work in this too, right? But like you said, I mean, then you start augmenting everything with CGI, and it just ends up looking silly anyways. Yeah. A lot of really a lot of really weak CGI in it Chapter Two uh, for for that budget of a movie. Yeah, I thought it was very poor and all. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have one last little Pennywise thing, and it's um, it's not to do with the actual movies, but uh, I don't know about you, if you know about these guys, Trev, but there's been these guys who dress up like horror movie monsters and do song parodies. Have you seen this the last couple of years? I have, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a new one that's a straight out of Compton one, and it's a Freddy Kr- parody, and it's Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and then the third verse is by Pennywise. I love the Pennywise. Like, just seeing Pennywise, because it's just a guy, like, in the mask, but it's a very high-quality mask, where from, like, a distance like it pretty much looks like the guy from the movie in honesty but just seeing pennywise and like the nwa gangster gear and stuff like there i was almost like i kind of wish they would have went this direction in the movie <laughs> like in the the wrapping the verses that where he's just bragging about how many kids he eats and shit i would uh, recommend it uh it's the the youtube channel name is called the merkins 
and uh, just look up "Killers uh, with Attitude." That's the name of the uh, the song parody. But yeah, do you do you think the chapter two kind of ultimately? I mean, I know it made a lot of money again, but do yeah. you think it ultimately kind of overall hurt the rep of the whole thing? Because man, that like the that first one was so big, and yeah. like the excitement, like that whole time of the, that in between time of one to two, and then I feel like after two is out, you just you don't hear anyone talking about either of them anymore. And I think it's just because yeah. people didn't react very well to the second one. I really feel like it took the steam out of the whole thing. No, I agree a thousand percent. Cause like, you know, it was, it was very much, um, you know, I didn't enjoy the first one. And whenever there's like a movie that's huge and just people are like raving about it for like a year plus, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, in like a movie you didn't, you didn't really like, like it kind of always sticks out to you. So like, I, I just like, I couldn't believe how overwhelmingly positive the response to one was and the way two, it was almost like um i don't know it was it was almost like a somber like when it came out like i heard it i like i heard a few mixed things for like a little while like the first couple weeks it was out like some people saying oh it didn't live up to the first one other people saying oh you know you know the the cast is so good like some people were really swept up by the casting but yeah, it was like talk about something where's like the first movie kind of the buzz and every and the reaction to it hung around for several months. It mm-hmm. was like it chapter two was like in the culture or whatever. It seemed like it was dead before it even left theaters, in all honesty. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. It was very weird. So yeah, so uh there's something you wanted to talk to me about, Trev. <laughs> Well, this kind of goes back to what you were just saying about movies that everyone likes that you don't care about. Yeah. Um, so this has been uh, – we were, I was just t- saying to you in an online chat recently that I feel like you and I have been too uh, – we've been agreeing too much lately. Yeah, we've really been on the same page. The, the old school goat Trev Charm was – we used to bitch all the time. In fact, we used to have a podcast all just devoted to us, yeah. our disagreements on films. And uh, I was listening to a, uh, another podcast that you were recently on, uh, the Film Smasher podcast. Yeah. And, and you said something that I just want to draw attention to because I, in the moment, I was really upset that I wasn't on the podcast to directly respond to it. <laughs> um, so you were you were discussing uh, Knives Out with, with right. Ryan Johnson. Um, and you said that uh, – and again, you were apparently you were just heated in the moment or something. Yeah. But you said on the show that that's a film that you will never watch because you were so annoyed by how everyone was saying it's just this like great political statement. Right. And you said that uh, – I'm trying to remember your exact quote, but it was something like, um, I don't care about movies that are spouting politics because it's never going to change my mind. So, that, so that's why I'll never watch that film. Right. But what, what I thought was funny about that was that you said it like roughly five minutes after raving about Paul Verhoeven in right. films like RoboCop and, and Starship Troopers. And then I was also thinking about how I know for a fact that your favorite filmmaker of all time is George Romero, right. whose films are very strongly political statements very often. So I just thought that was very funny. And I brought up to you as saying like, what are you, what are you talking about? And I really feel like in my opinion, I was just, I, to me, it sounded more like you were making an argument for why you're not going to watch a movie that you already know you're not, you've already decided you're not going to like, because the little backstory in this for people uh, who might think Goat is infallible is oh. uh, when we uh, a couple of years ago uh, we used to be in a group thread with us and a bunch of other of our, our buddies, and you uh, had two claims that I, I'm curious to hear what you say about it now because you told us that one that uh, Jojo Rabbit was going to be career suicide for Taika Waititi, 
And then you also told us that nobody really cares about Knives Out. We were all faking being excited for it and that it was not going to do well at all. And cut to, you know, a couple of years or a year or so later, Knives Out is a huge box office hit. Uh, Taika Waititi got an Oscar nomination for Jojo Rabbit. So um, just curious what your thoughts are on on your predictions there. No, and I I, I think I've I think I've said several times like I think I've eaten the crow and then some. But uh, Jojo yeah. Rabbit, real quick, those comments were made at a time. I mean, I guess we're very much in sensitive uh, societal times right now. Yeah. But uh, Jojo Rabbit was made at a time uh, when. Uh, uh, James Gunn basically made, I don't know how much it was, probably a billion or maybe, yeah, probably between Guardians 1 and 2. He made about a billion dollars for Disney. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he was shown the door because Alan Horn has morals, which ironically rhymes with orals somehow. But um, <laughs> but yeah, he he was shown the door. He was told, get the fuck out of here because you made some, uh, and to be fair, they were tasteless jokes about whatever it was five, six, seven years earlier. And uh, we were in a time when, uh, yeah, there was a big outrage of, uh, you know, hey, you know, these were jokes and don't you shouldn't have fired James Gunn and all that kind of stuff. But there also was a big, you know, whatever line of people that were like, like, yeah, like, you know, stuff like this isn't funny anymore. We're not going to laugh at this. We're not going to joke about this type of insensitive humor. And, um yeah, so couple that with the fact, and you're saying, well, how does this roll into Jojo Rabbit? Well, we're rolling into Jojo Rabbit uh, being a movie that presents a, a very funny and lovable <laughs> version of, uh, I guess, a fantasy version, I should say, of Hitler. Am, am mm-hmm. I right about that? So we, ha- we we have funny fantasy version of Hitler. We have a wacky movie about a young boy navigating his way through the Hitler youth. And it's like... I saw this coming down the pipeline, and I'm just like, everybody at the time was just blowing Taika Waititi for ironically, you know, making a, another Marvel movie. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Trev, but I thought he made Jojo Rabbit with with Fox Searchlight, which was then, mm-hmm. with the acquisition, was rolled into Disney. Uh, so by the time Jojo Rabbit was going to come out, it was technically going to be a movie that Disney had a release and market and uh, I read some articles that Disney didn't know what to do with this. They were like appalled. They were like, "We have to very, be very sensitive in the if if we release it at all, mm-hmm. we have to be very sensitive in the way they market it." And it just like the way everybody was so touchy, the way Disney themselves was touchy. I was just like, "There ain't no fucking way this movie's going to come out wide release," which it did not come out wide release. I should say it was you know art house slowly, mm-hmm. but then it rolled out into some more megaplex type theaters. But it never really, if I'm not mistaken, it never really made a ton of money. It was just a great critical reaction, and then like yeah, you said, I, I mean, I think that was ultimately its saving grace, right? Because I actually admit, like, to 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 be fair to what your to your original argument was, I was actually surprised there was like less discussion about it in that way when it came out, and I think. I think his like his uh, where he had an out on that always was that it was always a small film, right? right? It's not like he was trying to make a big studio movie about Hitler. Um, but also, I think they were when they did start marketing it, they were pretty wise to like pretty pr- make it pretty clear what the film is about in the trailers and reveal it's about this boy learning that he's wrong to be in the Nazi youth, you know. Right. Um, and then also they really benefited from coming out at a time when they were very able to market it off this string of saying, well. This is about Hitler and, and World War II, but it's also very relatable to what's happening in America right now, uh, right. which allowed them to just, have, you know, say, like, 
you know, no, this is actually a commentary on on current political issues uh, to to tie into our what started this whole thing. So they were able to like market it in that like prestige way um, and didn't have to really worry about it in that sense. Yeah. So Jojo Rabbit budget fourteen million worldwide box office ninety point three million. So I mean, it did literally about as possibly as well as a funny cute movie about Hitler could do. But I mean, you know, that was uh, you know grabbing five million from this country, six million from this country, like. Like I thought it was because Ta- Taika Waititi had you know ascended with these these movies like uh, What We Do in the Shadows, Hunt for the Wilder People, and then he got the Thor break, and then immediately followed that up with uh, Jojo Rabbit. I thought a it would lose a ton of money, which it did not. I was wrong about that, but I thought more than anything, b that failure would roll into like. Four five years later, oh yeah, Taika Waititi. Instead of being like, oh, he's the Thor guy, it's be like, oh, he's the guy that made the stupid movie about Hitler. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was wrong about wacky Hitler not being <laughs> reviled and, and and rejected by the. Uh, oh, but Knives Out, we have to get into. Yeah. All right. So my my failure prediction on Knives Out, which I've eaten much crow too, because I was genuinely shocked and surprised by its uh, success. Um, first of all, first strike against it, it was a Lionsgate release, which, <laughs> mm-hmm. Trev, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah, they're not exactly the hit makers. Second of all... No, I'm sure I'm sure they were just as surprised as, as you were. So. Yeah. Second of all, it was uh, the follow-up directorial whatever of Ryan Johnson, who was coming hot off of uh, uh, The Last Jedi, and they marketed it as like, hey, this is the director of Last Jedi. Like, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, which actually surprised me. I remember yeah. being like, cause as someone, so I'm someone who loves Last Jedi, and I remember being happy, but surprised that they they threw that in the trailer. I thought for sure they would be like, uh, from the director of Brick, you know, and just right. like leave it at that or something. Yeah. And like, like my thing was like specifically what I was saying in the thread when I said like all this fake excitement about Knives Out. And you guys like really weren't like going gaga about it. I mean, yeah, yeah, you 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 more than uh, took the Pepsi challenge once I brought it up. But like, just people in general, like once the project, because it it was kind of like I'd say it was. I think it was a, a calculated marketing type move. Well, we were doing that thing where they kept on making every casting announcement separately, yeah. and we kept yeah. posting each article, being like, "Oh my god, this is assembling such a great cast." And that's when you would come right. in and say, "Like, yeah, but nobody cares," you know? Yeah. Which, to be fair, like. We have watched the decimation of the mid-budget aimed mm-hmm. at adults movie for how many years now? Like over ten years now. Like this type of movie does not do well, and uh, which well it doesn't do now today. But even whenever Knives, I guess it was just a year ago, maybe Knives Knives Out came out. Yeah, yeah, last last uh, Thanksgiving. But I mean, this this type of movie has not done well. <laughs> for years and years which makes me sad because i enjoy this type of movie i enjoy you know uh, yeah i think that was like i think that's why everyone really celebrated the success of it was it wasn't even just it wasn't like oh good for ryan johnson or anything it was really people were like oh that's so cool that this kind of movie finally did well again you know that that this 40 million dollar movie like hung on like the fact that it was like the fact that it stayed in the top 10 past rise of skywalker was so great oh yeah yeah yeah, I mean it. It definitely had legs, and like uh, without like calling up the box office, I don't remember it being huge. The first weekend, it was just something that really had legs more than anything. I'd say, yeah, which is another thing you never see anymore. Right, right. So I mean, I mean, we're we're okay. We we are talking, we are talking. Don't 
don't get me wrong, we're talking huge stars cast. But Trev, I I, I think you would agree most of this cast that once it was a franchise cast, I'll put it that way. People are known for being in certain franchises, but usually all these actors, uh, you know, even Chris Evans and um, you know um, Daniel Craig, and uh, I mean. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis is more of just somebody who hasn't done a whole lot in the last 10 years. But uh, just in general, like this cast is a cast that once they step outside their franchises, people are like crickets, crickets. Yeah, not going to pay to yeah, see this. I, I actually agree. So that, actually, I want to ask you this question because like, I don't know how, if you've thought about this, but in terms of why Knives Out did well, like, right. Because um, I agree with you, like we've, we're definitely in a post movie star era. Right? right. So like you said, it's it's actually the franchise that sells, not the actor. Do you think that's the key to like a film like Knives Out and why it worked? Because what's the what's the threshold to be? You can't just market a non Captain America Chris Evans movie, and you can't just market a non Bond Daniel Craig, right? But once you throw eight different actors in, right, is that the thing? Are people excited to see all of them together? I think that's what it was. Is we don't. Another thing, we when, remember when we did our uh, Cannonball Run episode. Yeah. We talked about how we don't get all star movies anymore, and right. Knives Out actually represented that, right? Even though the trailer kind of was like, "Look at every star that's in this," and I think that was a big part of it. Like, oh man, all these people are in this. I think that's the key, and I think Ryan Johnson knows that. That's I think even you'll see in the sequel he's doing. I'm sure he's going to stack it again, right? You have to right. now. That's 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 the selling point. And I mean, even newer people who are, again are popular in certain movies but not popular overall like uh wasn't anna de Armas in it mm-hmm. and yeah. um i know this guy this could be this this could be the wrong name for this guy but wasn't lakeith stanfield in it yeah he is okay yeah. okay yeah i mean there's it, like it just like and first of all the, the <laughs> that first trailer was brutal but like but like what i was saying and I remember Ryan Johnson's career very well, very well. And I actually followed it and, uh, you know, because I, I used to be much more of an indie film guy. I still am at heart an indie film guy. I just don't follow it as closely as I used to. But I remember very, you know, the crowd I ran in, the, the L.A. hipsters, the whatever. I remember Brick coming out very well. Like, I don't remember when it was playing or anybody going to see it, but I remember when it hit DVD and everybody in my age group. At the time, I was in my late 20s, whatever. It was like, you know, that's the type of movie that whatever. So I remember the release of Brick. And, I mean, it it did get people talking. I don't want to say mm-hmm. what. But I remember when Brothers Bloom came out, and it was, like, pretty much shelved and not really released. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing him do a podcast about it that I, you know, a feature-length, whatever, 90-minute podcast where he talked all about it. And I was like, okay, whatever. Then Looper came out. Uh, was I wasn't too high on Brick. I thought it was okay for what it was. I only seen pieces of Brothers Bloom. Looper came out. I kind of lost my shit for a while over Looper. I really liked it. Um, I can't remember if I saw it twice in the theater. I maybe I did, but I liked it like that much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, that was that was definitely his turning point. I like Looper a lot too. Yeah, I've kind of soured on it lately. Because it kind of like hit me in a little bit of a way how much of a ripoff it was of the Terminator. But so it's like a little like whatever. And I kind of soured on Joseph Gordon Levitt overall, too. Like, I don't know. But, um, and I, and I, yeah, obviously I've soured on Bruce Willis, but, but I mean, e- either way, I mean, fair enough, whatever. I think it's like one of his last, like, other than. I mean, I actually liked Glass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's only like I think there's like three directors who like he will still give a crap for. Right, right. Uh, I think he likes Shyamalan. I think I think Ryan Johnson got something out of him, and I think when he's in a Wes Anderson oh, yeah. movie, he still cares. But yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think it's only available on a crappy, like non anamorphic DVD. But if you want to see Bruce Willis 
try to go avant-garde, uh, do yourself a favor and track down a copy of Breakfast of Champions. You ever seen that track? <laughs> I have, yeah. Well, I'm a huge Vonnegut fan. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, it, it's it's very representative of a, a certain type of wacky independent movie that uh, movie stars would sometimes make during the 90s, if you kind of remember yeah. that period. I, I feel like every big actor of the 90s had their like their version of Breakfast of Champions. He's just, he's just, it's so depressing. I recently rewatched Death Becomes Her for the first time in a long time, mm-hmm. and just to see him give such a real performance, right, like yeah. a comedic performance, and be like, God, this guy used to have it in him, you know, yeah. and just like how lazy he's become. Yeah, and you know, I don't know, like uh, like you said, it, it really, I mean, he ain't going to stop working because he needs a cash paychecks for whatever reason, but uh, like you said, it's it has to be the right director putting a fire under Bruce Willis. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. You know. But yeah, so, I mean, that just basically was it. Like, I don't remember anybody through the years, because even, Looper was like a surprise whatever, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. it was a Sony, I think it was a Sony movie, and it was back when Sony had a lot of freaking bombs, to be honest with you. And it was like, it kind of did okay, and it had people talking word of mouth, and it kind of had the twist to it, and Emily Blunt kind of emerged from it, and it was like, but I mean, and then obviously Last Jedi is a Star Wars movie, so there's a lot of excitement that's rolled into it that honestly has nothing to do with uh, Ryan Johnson, and I know Mm -hmm. some people claim it's vocal minority, but in my opinion, I feel like that movie, you know, the audience was very split, like 50-50 on the middle, I think some people walked out of it you know, high-fiving, and I think the other people walked out with their heads hung high. But, I mean, even... See, I still maintain, I've always said it's, uh, my opinion is it's more like 20% loved it, 20% hated it, and 40% were like, yeah, it's a Star Wars movie. <laughs> I think yeah, that's, I can that's see how that I always too. looked at it. Yeah. I can see that, too. And, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about the movie Ad Nauseum. There's things I like about it, there's things I don't... Ironically, I kind of can warm up to the movie more if that were to be the, say, the third part in the trilogy. I just didn't like it as a, a middle part because i felt like there wasn't a lot of threads to pick up on and then jj proved me well first of all jj was the wrong person to try to pick up those threads <laughs> but yeah i mean I've, I've i've seen that argument and i've tried to engage with that that way because that's the one argument where i'm willing to engage with people on last jedi because i don't want to engage with like the oh it's social justice and all that stuff like yeah, i don't yeah. care about any of that but then i think about when i see like legit kind of criticism of how it's not a great second film in a trilogy yeah and there's parts of that that I can't disregard. Like I'll even like that's the thing is I I love the movie, but I'm not saying it's perfect. I mean, like I, I like a lot of movies that I think there are flaws too. But um, you know, I I ended up reading that. Uh, I'm sure you've seen me post about it. The the Colin Trevorrow script for yeah. uh, episode yeah. nine, which did such a better job of picking up the threads Ryan Johnson right. gave him, showing that it could have been done right. And to me now, like reading that script, it's just like I can't believe they just were like, no, this doesn't work, and that they went with right. what JJ did instead. Yeah, I just, um, I don't know, like, 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 here's just my two cents on, like, let's just say, you know, obviously we're in this trilogy um, format, whatever, so there was always going to be a follow-up to Last Jedi, but let's say for whatever reason, Disney threw the trilogy idea out the window, and they were just making movie by movie, and like, Mm -hmm. like, let's say Last Jedi could have been the ending, wasn't a fan of how underutilized and i'm not and i know i know especially bird will post the the weird photos of a buff luke skywalker holding a 44 magnum saying this is what i wanted and whatnot (laughs) but like i just wanted luke to be how obi-wan was in a new hope that's all i wanted pass the torch die heroic's death get the fuck out of here whatever so like if last jedi was the end 
or not the end end of the story, but you know, the, the wrap up of this story. I kind of like the idea that Luke Skywalker, you know, in this really small gesture, just to buy them the time to get them to escape the planet. And, you know, just the people live, not even necessarily the resistance escape so they can rebuild, but just the, the handful of people get to live and survive this. I mm-hmm. kind of like the ending of evil winning, but Kylo Ren he's gotten all his wildest evil dreams have come true, right? Like he's the leader of the first order. He got away from Snoke. He, he just, he disregarded the Sith and Jedi legacy and whatever. But I kind of like that. He's now like, there's no foe left really to oppose him. I like that. You know, he's got no family left at this point. Really. I like that. He's just the, the, the story ends with him, you know, his evil betrayal uh, becoming him just sitting on an empty throne, lonely, and all he can really do is just, you know, knock around guys like Hux and punish people mm-hmm. who make stupid errors and do whatever. But the, but it's just, it's all a big empty conclusion for him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like that ending. I like that. Okay, yeah. yeah, Luke Skywalker, okay, he's gone, he's whatever, but we're into a new era. Technically, the First Order is in control, it looks like, but it, it really amount, It was all for naught kind of thing. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of describing to me, because like, I, I hated Rise of Skywalker so much that, to me, Last yeah. Jedi is the ending now. So. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time when, you know, the movie ends where everybody, you know, just a handful of people who survived on the... I mean, I mean, I... I wasn't thinking at the time that, the, that that those whatever 20, 30, 40 people in the Millennium Falcon were enough to really – because, like, really nobody came to help them at the end of Last Jedi, kind of. And it's just kind of like, okay, I get it. These are these 40 people on this Millennium Falcon are the only people left who, you know, f- from a philosophy standpoint or whatever, you know, they, they're the only ones who disagree and oppose the First Order, but it's, it's like – you know, maybe they can rebuild for another generation, maybe 10 years down the line, maybe 20 years down the line, there can be a mm-hmm. new hope type of situation. But, yeah. you know, and it, it just and more than that, it's not even like because people go, well, you got to judge a movie on based on what it is, not what you want it to be. And I, I do agree with that. But I got to say, emotionally, when I watch Last Jedi, it feels like a bittersweet but satisfying conclusion to a story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, Knives Out blew me away because that type of movie, which is generally a movie I, t- I, I like, it, 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 but it always bombs it, whatever. And just like, I'm just getting back to the original point of like, well, you like all these like political filmmakers. I like political filmmakers that like bury the politics enough to where you don't really on the surface know you're like watching a political movie and i'm not saying knives out is is like does that in a poor way because i haven't seen knives yeah, out yeah that's where i that's where i wanted to come into the fence and i wanted to say like wait to see the movie then like let's talk about because i actually think that's the case here and i think and right. i and i think i told you i was like i don't think you can actually find any interviews with ryan johnson where he says it's a political film i think you had a lot of people right. writing it writing that that's the case afterwards um because his politics are well known you know right. But I don't think the film is like in your face. Like there, there's a couple jokes in the film about like what's going on in the political scene right now. But ultimately, it's it's a murder mystery with with like you know. And then there's some stuff about like the, who the main character is. And but ultimately, the story it's telling is rich versus poor, which is a go-to storyline always, right? Right. So, yeah. And, and and that's the thing too is like when it comes to politics, I like to hear both sides. Even I like to even hear the side that I don't agree with. In all honesty, and it's like this kind of generation and you know things have changed like this generation of uh entertainers people in the entertainment industry now 
storytellers, whatever, um, that love to be like just beating you over the head with a one whatever direction thing. And it's like, that's probably my mistake. That's probably my my weakness is that I was confusing Ryan Johnson, the person with, uh, you know, what what his work was, what he did with Knives Out. So, I mean, I still have to reserve judgment, obviously. But I think I think what I was saying in that moment, the reason why I was saying I would never watch this movie, whatever, is like, I'm just sick of that. Right. Like, so like to me, somebody like Paul Verhoeven, somebody like George Romero, they satirize the society like the entire society they take a they take an idea the concept they work it into the story you can see society's reflection in the mirror so to speak it's like i'm just not a fan of the people that like i feel like they date their movies when they take like a certain stand one way or another and to be fair i don't really find you know of the ryan johnson movies that i've watched i don't really find them to be overly political i kind of like okay okay i can kind of see this guy's um you know, leaning, so to speak. It's more when you hit the Twitter, then you find all about <laughs> what he's about and what he's fighting for or whatever. So, I mean, to be fair, I mean, you know, and, and, and you're giving me the feedback, but I mean, the critics weren't giving me the feedback that this is a, like a whatever neutral nuanced story. They were just like, you know, I, I, you know, we all have agendas. Let's be honest. We're all human beings. We all have, you know, thoughts, emotions, whatever. And I just, what I hate about modern film criticism is there's a lot of people, they can't objectively write criticism of a movie now. They always bring up, oh, you know, even if the movie briefly mentions this, like, perfect example is when Terminator Dark Fate comes out, it's like, this is a movie, it's a complete allegory about immigration in today's society and blah, 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 and relate it back to our current president. And, like, I watch it and I'm like, it's an action movie with a scene where there's an objective, there's a reason why they have to cross the border from Mexico to U.S. Like, I'm not reading political anything into it. But don't you think it's kind of understandable why this is happening? Because to be fair, we are living in, like, for the first time in our lifetimes, we're living in a, in a crazy tumultuous point in American history, right. right? Like, we're essentially living through the 60s again, right, in terms of this much upheaval. It's true. Um, you know, and, like, so I think more so than ever, I think if Knives Out, just as exactly as it is, had come out during the Obama administration, you wouldn't have had so many people writing essays about like the meanings of it. But I mean, you you release a film during the Trump administration and the main character is an immigrant working for a rich family. Of course, everyone yeah. has to write a, an opinion piece about that now, right? And that's why I said like, I just felt like, yeah, I think you were confusing Ryan Johnson with everybody who has a movie blog who felt like they had to like write that article you know right, that's right. what happened with that film yeah yeah and i was just like like literally the 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 like literally the i don't know what you would say i don't know how you what would you say they're not log lines but you know like when you read a review and there's like that line at the top like what would you call that with a re, with a film review like yeah, just like a like a little like um sub headline or whatever right right article. right yeah like literally, I think of the first five reviews I read of Knives Out because I was very borderline. I was like, "Yeah, this 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 guy, like you know, he kind of get on my nerves." I'll be honest; he was kind of getting on my nerves for a while. Oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah, and I'm kind of like, "Do I want?" But I'm like, I'm "Like, but I want to see Chris Evans, and I want to see Jamie Lee Curtis." And Jamie Lee Curtis is another person that like kind of rubs me the wrong way in public, um, not because of like anything really she says, but she. I'm kind of like, ooh, like, like I kind of, it's hard to describe because I like her, but like, again, I want to see the characters. I don't want to see the person. 
just what we were talking about earlier, Christy Swanson. I want to see Christy Swanson's characters when I watch these movies. I don't, you know, whatever she does in real life, it's 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 like immaterial to me. So like, I kind of want to like cut that real life thing out. Like with actors, it's it's you know with sports people with whoever. Okay, you can do whatever. It's, but but with actors and stuff and and storytellers, like I kind of want to like I want to view your 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 art as objectively as I can. I don't want to let your real life whatever personality come into play. But with Ryan Johnson, it was just like, that guy was so in front. Like, even when he was promoting Knives Out, he was bringing up shit about Last Jedi. And to be fair, some of the interviews, they were drudging the shit up. Oh, talk about Last Jedi. Okay. But I was just like, dude, like, that's so, at this point, like, you're on your next movie. Like, I don't want to hear any, I don't want to hear you talk about anything about The Last Jedi. You know, like, I listened to your commentary track on the Blu-ray. I did, you know what I mean? Like, like, you've made your statement about that film. Like, let it go. And he's just been, you know, fighting the the Twitter trolls, whatever, ever since. But it's just like, yeah, it was just like, I just could not divorce the at the time, you know. And like like I said, like, and it's just like, that's what really knocked me the stink off the stink of that movie. But I think the first five reviews I read, I think the first, like, whatever subheadings, you know, log lines, whatever you want to call them, it was like perfect, whatever, and encapsulates whatever Trump's America. It's like, okay, I live in Trump's America. It's like I see both sides of it. I watch multiple news stations. I, my personal life, I know people who are on different sides of the equation. I don't want to then walk into a theater or like even for a long time, I didn't want to sit down in my home theater and put in a Blu-ray and like learn anything about Trump's America. I know enough about Trump's America. I live in it. Like, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't want to watch movies with like 2015 politics, 2018 politics. Like, I just don't like shit that dates it. But I think you're. I think you're right, though. If you view this movie 20 years later, you're not seeing it through the eyes of an immigrant worker or whatever, you know? But to to make the Romero comparison again, though, I mean, don't you think, to to be fair, don't you think, like, remember, I mean, when Land of the Dead came out, it was the same thing, right? Everyone was like, oh, Land of the Dead is about about Bush. And, like, and he he even directly took some of Bush's lines and put them in Dennis Hopper's mouth. And don't you think if Land of the Dead came out right now, everyone would be like, oh, Dennis Hopper, this is Trump. Like, you'd be seeing the same thing. Like, every review would be like, this is about Trump's America. They'd be saying the same thing. Because, like I said, anytime you make a movie that's about the haves versus the have-nots, people are going to equate that to what's going on in America right now. I mean, I, I kind of see what you're saying about the Bush thing. Um, the only thing I'll say about that, like, the reason I wasn't really, like like on that track as much as some people were was i i, I literally because george romero was trying to make that movie for 10 plus years i remember over various times like way before w bush was ever president i remember him saying like he wants to make a movie that's about america ignoring the homeless ignoring this problem yeah. ignoring that but, problem. I'm, but I'm, that's what i'm no. saying but that's what i'm saying you can like i'm, I'm saying like it's about the reaction to it whenever it comes out right yeah. I, I mean agree. i do th- i do think land of the dead and diary of the dead are the two most on the nose movies romero ever made where i think because like I said, he does take he straight out does take some Bush lines and throws a bit. I'm right. sure he just thought that was funny, you know. Right, right. But it's more like those are his two most on the nose films that he made. Where he's like, and I don't know, it's just because he as he got older, he was more frustrated by society. I actually recently, um, so I don't know. Did you? He just had that new novel come out, The Living Dead. Yeah, I and, heard about uh, that. Yeah, so I bought it. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. I, I watched a really good interview with um, Daniel Krauss, the author who finished it, and uh, Romero's wife, because they were talking about like how did you finish this, and he would talk about his process. And they were asking her, like, how would George feel if he was alive right now? You know, and she said, well, of course, he'd be like very cynical. He'd, he'd be like, I, you know, I, I told you so this is what I expected. Um, and she was kind of making the argument that, like, she's like, I'm sure he'd be writing a lot. Like, he would be so inspired by what's going on right now that he'd be like writing stuff about this. Um, so, I mean, he was definitely always feeding into the political moment. But, yeah, I'm just saying, like, you could take Land of the Dead just as it is and put it out. And all the same people wrote those pieces about Knives Out 
they'd be like, this film is, is speaking to us too. You know, they're always right. going to do that. But I, I think the difference was, you know, and like I brought up the Terminator or whatever thing is like at the time, um, you know, Tim Miller was talking all his big shit in the press about how this, this isn't a movie for misogynists and this area, you know, Ryan Johnson does similar things. I think the difference between a, between like Paul Verhoeven and George Romero is like, I don't think they necessarily were cowards or that they ran and hid from like whatever they, whatever. But I think, I think their movies were more about, in a way, talking about something. Whereas I think this modern generation of guys, their movies are more about taking a stand on something. And like, even if you said, if you divorce, you know, which I, I admit I, you know, I try to do, but in this case, I could not, the Ryan Johnson case, I could not divorce the creator from the art, uh, you know, for temporarily. I mean, it's even though I said, I'll never watch Knives Out. I mean, I, you know, I'll watch it someday, believe me. But, like, I think these guys, like, they're just all about, like, hey, you know, is there a microphone in front of me or whatever? Like, yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I believe in. And it's kind of like, yeah. to me, that kind of takes some of the, the shine off the, the paint job. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't actually disagree with you. I do think it's very, I just think it's because of the time we're living in. I think it's yeah. very hard for people not to talk about political stuff right now. Because I think, yeah. I, I think actually a lot of people who do talk that much would probably prefer not to be this engaged you know yeah. like my my big thing is my i love i miss the days when like during the obama presidency i would go months without thinking about obama oh, you yeah. know yeah, you and did, i yeah. wish i could i wish i didn't have to think about trump every day you yeah, know because yeah. it's just like it's so constant of what's what's going on right and so i think people feel like they have to speak up in it more than uh we've seen in like other de- uh, recent decades well i i, I think too is like just kind of like what this is just my impression obviously people have different experiences whatever but i feel like i feel like like you said like you wouldn't hear too much out of obama but when there was something with obama you would maybe see like the pushback to people that didn't agree with what he was doing they didn't agree with whatever it was whereas like the trump thing it's like whatever you know policy whatever issue he takes uh you know whatever whatever happens you you first see the critics come out and then you see the other come out other side come out to defend so it's like it's like you're kind of hearing like double the noise than any other presidency <laughs> like mm-hmm. and to yeah. be to be fair I don't really get why that is I mean like you know like you know like I just figure any president is always going to be like you know because we literally have only two political parties there's going to be a side for and a side against I just to me that logically makes sense but why both sides are so engaged, I think, is like, and like you said, like that is just critics, whatever, grabbed a film. Oh, we can, we can, you know, we can write a review that that uh, interjects this this topic, this agenda, whatever viewpoint, whatever however you want to put it. It's just like I think it's like doing movies a disservice, you know, in all honesty, because like. I mean, I don't know for sure, but we all know that these guys take multiple years to write these movies. So, like, by the time, literally. Knives Out came out in theaters. Um, it was, I guess, th- three years, maybe a little under three years since, like, you know, not th- not counting the election, but once Trump actually took office, it was less than three years, I guess, if I'm rem- if my my math is mm-hmm. up in my head. I I I think Ryan Johnson, you know, and that's like when it was in theaters. Meaning a year before that, you know, he had to do all the pre-production. A year, be, you know, however long before that, he had to write it. Like I seriously doubt that he was like six months into Trump's like six seven. Oh no, eight no, months, actually, like, I actually have it in front of me, and it says after making the after making Brick in two thousand five, he came up with the basic concept for Knives Out. Okay, in yeah. twenty in twenty ten, he expressed interest in making an Agatha Christie inspired murder mystery, and I'm sure at that point he already had the idea of. 
oh, the protagonist will be this young girl. Like, cause that's the thing. It's like, she, it's not about making a political statement. I think it's about making her sympathetic. Right. right and right. like the key to making a sympathetic characters have them have no power compared to everyone else in the story. Right. So because she's a young, she's an, you know, an illegal immigrant working an for this rich family. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the key. But then you're right. Then by the time it comes out, and then yeah. he peppers in just a little bit, right? He has like there is a character in there that they the the, the family members there's like some family members that are liberal and there's some that are conservative. And there's like one brief dinner scene where they're kind of having a debate about like Trump. And they don't they don't even say Trump, but you can tell that's what they're talking about. Right. And that's like the bit where he's like, Well, I'm throwing this in because it's just current now, right? Right. But overall, like the story, you remove that bit, and again, rich people versus poor people will work in any decade ultimately oh yeah and i mean how many going back to the 70s and 80s how many times have you seen a a movie about upper class whatever where there's always like the people at the dinner table that are on like you know what i mean like the other side of i mean shit think about think about american psycho like well, there's much more important things going on than the massacres in Sri Lanka. You know what I mean? Like this <laughs> yeah. type of this, this type of scene, this type of you know characters clashing over political beliefs. Like it's it's been in movies forever. Like, mm-hmm. like like like, and that's another thing that just annoys the shit out of me with current stuff. Was we have to pretend like everything was just invented five minutes ago. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's one thing. So when you do finally see it, I'll be curious to finally hear what you think. Because like I think one, and you're right. When you were talking about it being a disservice to the movie. The idea of people coming in and saying, well, this movie is so representative of one side or the other, like ultimately, it, it, so like I said, there's some people in the family that are liberal and then there's some people that are alt-right. And the thing is, Johnson has them all turn out to be assholes, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then when you're telling the audience, they're like, oh, this movie is just just criticizing the alt-right, then you're potentially like limiting your audience in a way, right? Oh, I really, agree. He's got, yeah. the, the liberals in the movie are just as stupid. You know, that's the yeah. point. Like they're all just assholes, essentially. So, yeah. yeah. And I generally so, enjoy those type of I I you know like I love I love a good movie like The Ice Harvest or something like that where it's like everybody is flawed everybody is mm-hmm. shit you know what I mean like I enjoy yeah. so yeah so we ended up doing an episode of, of Mr. Boogie which ended up being our most political episode of all time <laughs> what do you think about that track? Of course. I wonder what the I wonder what the think piece is about Mr. Boogity would be if they came out today. I, I know. You, you know it'd be about him being a pilgrim. Like that's for sure. Yeah, like, M- Mr. Boogity and Trump's America. Uh, <laughs> uh, how did he treat the how do the pilgrims treat the Indians? How did yeah. yeah. There's always a spin to put on it. But like you I, said, it would be like, oh, should we really be rooting for the ghost mom? Because she was probably part of this anti-Indian yeah. system, too. You know, yeah. What happened to her husband? How come her marriage didn't work? Why did her husband mm-hmm. get killed? She was she was to blame, so you know you can spin any way you want well, one last last jedi thing uh i want to talk about it was i was listening to uh, episode zero of failure to franchise and I, I i like you guys made a shocking uh declaration uh you you declared not just for yourself but also for your co-host that uh you you guys are uh sjw last jedi cucks yeah yeah, no, we are. Uh, we we're we're total uh, uh, libtard cuck defenders of of Last Jedi. No, but I mean, I w- it's, it's also because you. I mean, we've you know we you we you and I have talked about this so much. It's it's strange because we we obviously say that in a joking way, but it's weird because yeah. like, and I think this is where you fall too of like, just not giving a damn kind of. If yeah. like I actually like I'm like. I'm happy that there, there's more diversity in Star Wars, and I never under, I yeah. didn't ever expect to be in a position where that's like something you even have to discuss or argue about. Right. And like that's the weird thing is I really think like most people are just like yeah just get the best actors right, right. and like um and so 
and like and this is where I do think I, I agree. I, mean, I think there's I think there are a lot of people like didn't like Last Jedi for like legitimate story reasons. I'm just talking about that annoying like five yeah. percent or so that attacked it for that kind of stuff. And it's like whatever. Well, and like they're they just made their voice heard really loud. But I don't think anyone ever really took that seriously. So no, no, I, you know I've I've uh, you know I I feel like that like what you're talking about that noise that you're talking about. I think that was more what was going on, the fury that was going on while the film was in theatrical release. And then mm-hmm. I, I saw a lot more um, kind of intelligent, well-balanced, well-argued uh, arguments coming out like later on, like once the yeah. film was on video or what, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, the frustrating thing is, is like seeing that how I, I, I think Disney like panicked and really did a disservice to yeah. uh, Kelly Marie Tran in the next one because of that. And it, that was a yeah. case where it's like, Oh man, the bad people won this one, you know, and that was a shame. So, well, like, I mean, I will agree with some of the criticism of Last Jedi in terms of like our main characters didn't get to really be together. So, like, okay, like, yeah. just I, like I, in Empire Strikes Back, but okay, go on. <laughs> well, well, you know, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, I get that feeling because, you know, and so I, I, I get the whatever the the concept to put ray poe and finn back together but at the same time like you you did introduce a fourth person into this yeah, mix because that's like that's like the lando thing right like yeah. he's introduced an umpire and then he's part of the gang in the next one like that's right. the way it works you add new characters and they keep moving ahead you know? exactly exactly to the point where like you introduce lando and empire and then he actually is physically the one who flies the million falcon and blows up the second right Death and that's Star another thing like in the in the trevorrow script rose is such a bigger character and she actually is like a big hero of the third right. act um she's actually the one who ultimately defeats like uh you know you know she does something really clever to like take out a big part of the first order leadership and then to think that in in the movie we got she's just like no i gotta stay behind and study or something it's like what yeah and like you know and and like let's be fair there was plenty of uh, like running time in the in the whatever it is rise of skywalker it's a pretty long movie like they could have could have worked her in you know what i mean yeah, I mean it's. I mean, well, I mean, look, it's just a sloppy film and everything. And yeah. you and I have had many debates about Kathleen Kennedy. Um, I'm not as down on her as you are, but that yeah. that was definitely the first, even more so than like all the solo stuff and everything. That's the first time where I looked at it and I said, like, she really messed this one up. Yeah. And like, and from what I understand, like everything I've read said that she really wanted Ryan Johnson to just stay on, and it was kind of more like, what's his name? Uh, is it? Alan Horn coming in and saying yeah. like no 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 like we gotta we gotta get rid of him and then we don't want to we're not using this other script and so yeah. but the fact that she so I don't think it's all on her but she didn't she could have stepped in more as producer and and put her foot down a little bit more and ultimately the problem with that film is ultimately the problem with Hollywood in general it's that they had to make that release date right you give yep. you give you give Abrams because Abrams not a stupid guy Mm-mm. you you give him another year to like work on that thing and really figure it out they could have come up with something better. Oh no, I agree. And I mean, th- there's there's very small th- scenes and things that I like within the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I would say, I like probably like generally enjoy probably about twenty percent of that movie. I but, actually think I really like Poe in that movie. I think it's his best yeah. one. I think it, that's the best Poe Dameron movie. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I, I think it's uh, hmm, out of the main whatevers. I th- I th- yeah. I I don't know. I I I think I think Ray didn't necessarily suffer in Rise of Skywalker, but I don't think she she really got the conclusion that we just we would that we deserved for her. Yeah. No, I think her and Kylo Ren both got kind of shafted. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. 
I'll tell you what really bugged me. I I didn't like that horse shit of like Finn always trying to tell Ray something. (laughs) Yeah. And when I heard what it supposedly was, I was like, that would have been a cool direction to go into. But whatever. It doesn't make any sense. I don't even believe them on that, though, because it's not the kind of thing you like you you tell someone right before you're dying. You know, like that's just that's like damage control after the fact. But But I'll be I'll be honest. As soon as they were selling the film as the return of Palpatine, I was kind of like, this is just. This is going to be bad. Like this yeah. is not this is not going to end well story wise for anybody. You know what I mean? Like not for the fans, mm-hmm. not for the filmmakers. And like you know we've you know like because because you know I feel like you've been a little bit on there too of the bandwagon of like you you really shouldn't start a trilogy with no plan in place at all. And I feel like you know like I'll be honest, I thought they were going to kind of stick the landing a little bit better than they did. No, I did. I did too. I went in thinking like I I was not I was not angry about Abrams coming back cuz I I liked no. Force Awakens and I thought our big our big thing me and my my friend group going in was like, "Oh, this movie's going to be this movie's going to play it so safe, but it'll be but that's what you want, right? He's just going to bring it in for the easy landing." And instead, I don't know, they just went insane making that movie but yeah it was like it almost felt like it was more like michael bay's rise of skywalker than it was jj abram's rise of skywalker mm-hmm. and like to the point yeah, like it's, it's all over the place yeah and like i get there was reshoots and there was rescripting and there was whatever but i'm just like i'm at the point where like i don't it would have to be something that looked amazing like in the trailers but like i don't think i can trust like paying money to go see a J.J. Abrams directed film again. I'll just be honest with you, like, cause, cause, like, I thought he started out Star Trek pretty strong, and then he lost interest. Yep. And now that franchise has gone by the wayside too. They're like blowing it up. I feel like Star Wars, even though I was not a Force Awakens fan, because I felt like the story was derivative. I liked a lot of the visual shit he did. I liked a lot of the characters he created. I just didn't like the way it went. But I was like, I felt like he was like on the ball you know to his best ability when he made force awakens and i felt like with this one like i honestly felt like he just came back to like for a payday or something for rise yeah of or to like a, as a favor to her right yeah, yeah. like yeah no that's the thing is he had no it's clear he had no passion for it, and that's where that's where i lose respect for him because to go back to something you just said like actually i'm not i was never i still unlike other people i don't think the problem was having no plan because i just said i actually think exquisite corpse storytelling which is what that's called when you just like someone does a chapter and passes it along i think that can work as long as you have like talented people doing it but i think like what bothers me about abram is is that hubris of creating a bunch of questions in force awakens that you don't have answers for right and giving it to another filmmaker and saying here you answer the questions and then not being happy with his answers and coming back and saying well now i'm going to retrofit it to disregard your answers that's like so unfair and like you can say whatever you want about Last Jedi, but you could feed off of what Johnson gave you and just say, like, no, actually, what he said about Ray is is a lie. It's like, what? Like, yep. And, like, the, I'm sorry, but the idea of her being a nobody is more interesting than the Palpatine reveal. So, Oh, the, to, to me, that's why, like, I'm borderline. Because, I mean, you know me, like, I'm not a... I'm not really a fan of this trilogy, but but I, mm-hmm. I I bought Force Awakens, I bought Rise of Skywalker, I bought the import 3D Blu-rays. I enjoy watching them in 3D. Um, and I'm like, I, I don't think technically now I can't e- even order it from overseas now. I don't think they'll ship it, but like, I'm really like, should I, like, what should I do? Should I just order the 3d version of rise of Skywalker? So it looks pretty and, you know, filled out looking on my shelf for my star Wars collection, or do I just not buy this movie 
And then I'm like, well, if I don't buy this movie, then I should probably get rid of these two, these two other ones because <laughs> yeah. it's like, what's the point of owning two thirds of a trilogy? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know. I'm holding on hope. I have Force Awakens and Last Jedi on, on Blu-ray, and I did not buy Rise of Skywalker. And I'm mm-hmm. maintaining a hope that somewhere right now, especially with everyone just sitting at home in quarantine, I have to imagine some fans somewhere are animating that Trevorrow script. And someday, <sighs> if there's like a bootleg unofficial animated version of that i'll just accept that as episode nine yeah i mean i just don't like it's to the point where like i really don't want any more star wars but at the same time i'm content because like this whole trilogy has been a painful process for me and uh just not enjoying where it's going and the idea of not being excited about star wars like like i was very you know, by the time, like, you know, the, the discussions with everything with Last Jedi, I was just kind of like, I'm just tired of Star Wars coming out, in my opinion, not being very, that's just my opinion, my opinion not being very good, but I'm tired of it just sucking the air out of everything film-related. So by the time Rise of Skywalker came out, nobody cared about it. The box mm-hmm. office, you know, the, it was a huge decline from um, uh, Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, uh, a, another very noticeable drop from Last Jedi to Force to Rise of Skywalker. I was just happy that nobody cared anymore. That like I didn't have yeah, to it, like hear about it everywhere I looked. You know what I mean? It's it's a fandom that really killed itself, right? Yeah. By just not allowing themselves to just take it in, and like I mean, and we're guilty of this too, right? But by by making every one of the films into like such a debate and everything, yeah. the fandom just destroyed it all. Like to where yeah. it's it's not it's not fun anymore, right? Uh, and that was probably why that was the good thing about Mandalorian was it was just like a little simple show that everyone could be like, oh, this is fine. You know, yeah. like that's what you kind of want from Star Wars. Now we're like, yeah, this is good. You know, like that. as long as you can keep it like that simplistic, then I do think uh, I'm 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 more into the idea of Star Wars just being like a TV property for a bit. You know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, so so what's like, let's play a time jump game here, Trev, because we're recording mm-hmm. this in uh, mid to late August, but it's going to air in early October. So what I was trying to get at, you made a shockling declaration in episode zero. What are more, like, like let's relive some of the other shocking uh, declarations you've made in uh, Failure to Franchise uh, since since then. Uh, what do you mean, like... Uh... Well, like, like, let's pretend it's really October now. You got a couple more episodes. Like, what are your shocking revelations that you you're going to bust out? And f- by the way, I'm talking about this in the past, but in, you know, because I have it. I don't know if you ever heard the first episode of uh, the movie Graveyard, but I do have a time machine. So we're going to travel back, and then we're going to come back to the current. We're we're going to go back to the future. What like? Because you had that shocking declaration, episode zero. What was your shocking declaration that you made in episode one? Um, boy, so you're looking to ask me to like look ahead and yeah, think about yeah. what I'm going to say. Like, what if <laughs> um, so you're basically, you're trying to get me to spoil future episodes of Failure of the Franchise for you. Uh, uh well, I mean, kind of like, like, like let's, uh, but, but, but we'll, we'll keep the out of the, like, maybe because like the Terminator thing of like, you can change the present. Like maybe you actually won't say these things, but the current timeline, we, you know, we're jumping back and forth between t- timelines, you know, like, like we're on earth 616 right now. What are some of the shocking things that you, you were going to say? <laughs> I mean, I can like I I know some things are going to say in future episodes, and I don't know how many of these things will be like kind of controversial or whatever. Yeah. But I mean, like um, things that I know are probably going to give me some blowback, depending on who listens to them. Yeah. Um, is maybe a discussion about how 
uh, maybe the, the the stupidest fandom in the franchise world is the Ghostbusters fandom mm. because it's that's not a real franchise and people need to finally let it go. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, you well, by the time this comes out, you'll have heard our Waterworld discussion, wow. and that will have a lot of me um, kind of discussing the career of Kevin Costner and how I really think he's gotten a bad rap. Although I think it's finally coming back around a little bit, right? Um, yeah, it his, is. His his overall like kind of rep in the world. Uh, I don't know if I'll have anything as shocking as just my my strong defense of of Last Jedi because right. God, there's no other there's no movies coming out this year for me to make shocking declarations of. Nope. You know, that's the sad thing. We're living in this like this poor world. Maybe uh, no, James Bond won't even be out yet. It won't. I don't think James Bond is going to come out in November either. But no, I don't either. Uh, yeah. Maybe my maybe the shocking thing I'll talk about is maybe uh, that uh, New Mutants will be the best of the of the Fox X Men films. Yeah, so so sorry I put you on the spot there. I was just trying to find a if creative to see it. Yeah, if we were to see it, I was just trying to get, find out a creative way for you to plug failure franchise. But uh, I've been listening to uh, your other podcast, Days of Future Podcast, examining the X Men, and yeah, like like I I enjoyed. Uh, you guys put me onto the Nick Bateman train. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch the the Gambit fan film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm going to make a shockingly declaration to you right now, Trev. I like okay. I have a, a two part declaration. Unshocking to you, probably, as I ended up enjoying it a lot more than you guys did. But mm-hmm. shockingly, the one gripe I had was, what was it with all the stupid cuss words? What was that about? Yeah, you know what? What kills me is I realized after we did the episode that we never talked about that, and I was oh, like, "Oh man, how did I forget?" Because that was like me to like, why did they have to go like so blue on it? Like that was yeah. unnecessary. Like, yeah. I mean, during the card game, everybody's saying "fuck" nonstop. Like, don't get me wrong. Like the bloody like dispatchal of the you know the whatever SWAT team that comes in and they kill and everything. And I'll, I'll say one thing. Uh, in the, uh, I want your take on this too. I really enjoyed the version of Rogue that they had in that 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 short film. No, I did too. I think we mentioned that in the episode that like okay. in like uh in a bre- in like a five minute appearance, she was more like the comic book Rogue than we ever got in the in the Fox films. Yeah, and I liked it. I wasn't really digging the Gambit voice or accent, however you want to phrase it, but I yeah. I kind of like the Rogue uh, characterization and accent a little bit. But mm-hmm. and man, you can never go wrong with the the great. Uh, Eric, Eric Roberts. Roberts, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you can. I've, I've definitely seen some movies where I'd argue that, but it's always fun to see him. Yeah. So, yeah, so guys, definitely listen to uh, Failure to Franchise, which by the time you hear this, I think, I think pretty sure by that time you guys will have three episodes out. Maybe uh, Yeah, four. Well, I think even more. I think uh, if this is October, we'll probably be yeah. getting ready to do our October episodes. Um, no I can even worries. give a, a little pre- preview of that. Um, so just so people know, like, Failure to Franchise is a new show I'm doing with my buddy Chris. Uh, every episode we look at a film that was clearly intended to start a franchise and never actually got any sequels. And uh, this October we plan to look at the, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Wow. Um, so that'll be one. And then I believe we're going to be looking also at uh, – Fetty Alvarez's Evil Dead, I think, is what we're planning. Wow, that's a good one. That is a yeah. good one because I remember when that movie was literally still in theaters. Everybody was like, "Oh yeah, there will be one out like in a year time, like a sequel yeah. to it." And it was like, "Nope." <laughs> yeah, it's either that or um, we're thinking. Uh, what, did, what did I just say? Friday the Thirteenth or Nightmare on Elm Street? We might just do the Nightmare both the platinum. We might just do both the platinum dunes. 
yeah. franchise drop the balls, but we'll certainly get to Evil Dead at some point too. So awesome! Looking forward to those. Everybody listening to those, and then um, I'm sure by the time uh, October hits, uh, Days of Future podcast will just be the horror of that. Will be you guys will be doing your reviews probably of New Mutants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe we'll see yeah. maybe the horror of that will just be like we're see, talking about another delay of it so no because there's been so much new mutants um uh like whatever hello hubbaloo whatever you want to say i t- debunked this for me because you know this better than i do trev what i heard was they made the new mutants mm-hmm. like a, the movie a certain way and then they cut a trailer that looked like a horror movie but the actual movie wasn't like that and that they were then going to do re- because the the trailer did so well, people liked the horror aspect of it, that they were going to do reshoots to make it more like a horror movie, but those reshoots never actually ended up taking place. So, do so, you- so, from, so from what I understand, the actual story is that it was always made. He's it, it was always a horror superhero film because that's kind of what the the story they're adapting is a horror story. Right. The trailer was cut to be even more horror than what the movie is. And the studio was so happy with that, the response to the trailer, they wanted him to go in and film some additional scenes that would even up the horror. And apparently he wasn't like all about that because he was pretty pleased with the film the way it was. And then because of like the Disney sale and everything, it just kept getting pushed off and pushed off. And eventually it was like one good thing that came out of that whole mess is that eventually they just didn't care anymore. And they let him like lock the film the way he initially intended it. So the the one benefit of all this is that we're act- we actually are, from what I understand, we are getting the version of New Mutants that Josh Boone always hoped for. Like, this is his, like, cut. Um, he never had to go in and do, like, any of those reshoots they were trying to to force on him. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I believe it. it is still – it is more of a horror film than any other X-Men movie, but not, like, pumped up to, like, 11 or whatever they were hoping for. Um, it's just the film he wanted it to be, um, which is the Demon Bear storyline, which is already kind of a more, um, you know, horror-generated storyline. Interesting. Yeah. Just, just, just a one last deep dive question. Sure. All the X Men movies. I, I know mm-hmm. there's some of you love, some you don't hate. I, yep. I need to know: Are they all on your Blu-ray shelf? They are not. No, I do not own. Uh, I don't own number three. I don't own um, Wolverine Origins, and I don't own Deadpool two. And I don't own Dark. And I don't own Dark Phoenix. Okay, so. interesting. Dark Phoenix, I would probably buy someday if it was cheap because I actually didn't hate that one. Yeah. And oddly enough, I do own Apocalypse, which I don't like. So okay. maybe if I could like trade Blu-rays, maybe I could trade that one for Dark Phoenix. You would swap them out. But at the yeah. end of the day, you still would never own all of them. That's interesting. No, no. There's ones I don't care to own. Yeah. 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 I was always curious about that. I, yeah, no, I, 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 there's a there's a younger version of me that was like more of a completionist in that kind of run of like if if I start a franchise, I'll get them all. But I've realized that, yeah, I'm not going to sit down to watch Like, even Deadpool 2, I just didn't like it. So it's not like I'm going to sit down to rewatch it. So why right. bother? You know? I, I, have a, I have a bombshell to drop, maybe. I actually own them all in my mm-hmm. least watched one, which I'll throw in this, like, whatever. You know, my least watched one is X2. But mm-hmm. I've actually owned that one probably, except for, like, obviously Dark Phoenix because it's the newest. I've owned that one the least. I've only owned X2 for, like, maybe two or three years. So Yeah. I don't know, like, like, to, like I, I always thought X two was overrated because I liked the storyline they were doing. I, I, especially once you get to the third act, I feel like they didn't have the budget to do what they wanted to do. That's the, always the feeling I get when I watch the end of that movie. I mean, I think that's somewhat true, but I do. I mean, I think the Lady Deathstrike Wolverine fight is pretty great. Yeah, 
Although, uh, Brian, because Brian, Co- Brian Cox is like the original striker in the series, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's actually my favorite version of striker from the mm-hmm. movies. So Yeah. All right, guys, we have done almost a two and a half hour episode from a 45 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. We could have watched Bride of Boogity. We could have. We could have. That, that would probably be what people would think. They'll go, oh, they mislabeled the episode because it's so long. They watched both movies. <laughs> yeah. And then but they just, just called. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, I, I hope we didn't catfish too many people with this episode. Um, I really thought we were just going to talk an additional 20, hey, maybe. This is, this is free content. You can turn it off whenever you want. That so. is true. Like, as soon as I'm sure a lot of records were scratched. As soon as somebody heard Trump's America come up in this podcast, <laughs> but hey, you know sometimes you guys you gotta talk about shit, and it was it was, it was good to uh, catch up here in the graveyard yeah. about these burning movie issues. We try, I try to keep the 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 you know extracurricular talk. I try to steer it. You know, we we got your Pennywise update, how he's rapping now. We got yeah. <laughs> We got the New Mutants update. Uh, literally, uh, when's it come out in theaters? New Mutants this Friday, right? allegedly and i think it's yeah. next friday from when we're recording okay. but yeah we'll, yeah we'll see all right so you know hopefully you guys like that bonus content hopefully uh, you guys are in the uh you know the 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 fall spirit the halloween spirit even though there might not be uh you know as many uh, festivities this year yeah don't let uh, i mean like halloween is like don't let this whole covid thing ruin halloween for you no. just chill out at home watch still watch scary movies you know make it your own personal halloween yeah i mean I'm assuming like the crop got harvested and everything. So like if they're if they're selling pumpkins at your local supermarket, even if you haven't like done one in years, like I lapsed, I didn't do one for a lot of years. Like I think last year and the year before I got them, like like pick that up because let me tell you, I know there's a lot of things you can't participate as a grown up anymore. You know that are reserved for kids, but like you can, I don't care how old you are, you can still carve a pumpkin just like you did when you were 12 years old. That's right. Yeah. So, Trev, I want to thank you for uh, joining me and uh, not only going down my uh, bizarre direction of wanting to cover Mr. Boogity, but obviously talking about all these hot topics. Oh, no problem. Anytime. I think I think we were overdue for a catch-up like that. So For sure. I would even go as far as to say if I really had to you know, declare which podcast out there was the hottest film talk podcast of summer 2020, I would say it's actually this one. Not that other one. It's this one. So, okay. <laughs> so Trev, I'll be talking to you soon. And uh everybody else will catch you next time here in the movie graveyard. See ya.